Welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, and we are here on episode 120. Wow, my mind is maturing all the time. <laughs> 120, <laughs> not only that, I looked, Mike, What's 94 that? episodes, Yeah, that's 94 weeks straight yeah. right. without a break. That's that's amazing, and that's where it's going to have to stand because <laughs> to our audience, we got to tell our audience next week we're going to be taking a week off, only a week. Yes, don't worry, we'll week. be back in two weeks because we need to catch up with our day jobs. <laughs> <laughs> really getting yeah. away from us here. I've got a project uh, that I've got coming up, I need to spend some time on, mm -hmm. and also, you know, the ever supportive Mrs. Russ. Yeah, she uh, supports what we do, but. Yeah. Every Sunday, uh, locked away in the yeah. mountain lair to do the podcast and lots of listening hours. Right, uh, she needs a little bit of uh, extra time and uh, so yeah. we'll do something. We we'll like get to that do that too. too. Yeah, yeah, but since uh, episode twenty-seven, that's way back in September two thousand twenty-one, we've uh, gone continuously for ninety-four weeks, and that's not even including the three interviews that were uh, also right. added in there. So. It's pretty easy to just, you know, get on, you know, for 94 straight weeks and talk on a microphone. But you have to keep in mind, we're hearing six albums every week, every yeah. one of those weeks, which is quite a lot. All that, that's a lot of listening. And the thing is, like, people have said to us, boy, that's a, you know, how do they do it? It's a lot, you know, it's a, you know, there's a lot of listening for the week. But the thing is, at the end of the year, I realized that I have a list equally as long or longer as the list of albums that we've listened to that oh, sure. we didn't get to. Yeah that I really wanted to hear. <laughs> you know? I get, so we, we still don't hear everything. Maybe around 5% of what I have listed up as like, these would be worth talking about, you know? So, right. I've got a lot of those now yeah, too. Uh, just pages and pages archived. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, now that we've covered more than 700 recordings, yeah. another summer project I have is I'm building a database. So ah. it's because it's getting hard to look back and find out, you know, yeah. who was on what recording and when. I've actually about already it. given up. So, um, <laughs> I want yeah. to say that sometimes, <laughs> and it would be nice to see. Yeah, I've got it started at least in a spreadsheet format, and we'll get it into some kind wow. of database soon as well. Amazing. So yeah, that's uh, something to work on, and more than seven hundred recordings we've been through. So yeah, I want to keep track of that for uh, posterity. And so, yeah, we'll take a week off next week and we'll be back with our next episode. That'll be on July 3rd, uh, released okay. on that Monday. And before we get going, I also want to just mention some thank yous to musicians from last week's episode. Uh, first of all, to the fine guitarist Gurleraz with mm. his uh, organ trio fun recording called Squiggles on Ubuntu. Uh, Ubuntu gave us a little thumbs up for that. And Gurleraz shared the episode there, so we uh, got some uh, extra new listeners there. Also to a uh, dazzling young pianist from Argentina, Javier Borin. Mm. Uh, if you haven't heard his recording, Escenarios, from last week, check that out. And he shared the episode, and we got a bunch of uh, downloads from Argentina uh, last week. All of a sudden, so, right? He even wrote to us, and he, he wrote that he doesn't speak English well, but thank you, or something, yeah. like, something yeah. like that. And really uh, finally, hmm. to uh, Christopher Lucas Wilson, uh, his really great trio recording, uh, Solemn Moments, that we talked about a few months back. He just hmm. happened to share the episode in a little excerpt from the review and said, if you haven't heard that yet, please listen to it. And some people paid attention to that. So thanks a lot, all three of you, for uh, sharing that. You know, that's the best way to get uh, new listeners for us is through 
you know, music fans of artists that we've talked about. So that helps us out a lot. Yeah, I think that's Christopher Lucas Wilson. I think that's one of the few um, jazz albums that I have on CD from this year because I can't afford them anymore. <laughs> the yen just gets weaker and weaker all the time. Yeah. Prices in Japan are becoming cartoonishly high. A lot of uh, recordings I'd like to buy, but I'm kind of waiting to see. Yeah, if, waiting uh, to. There's got to be some kind of reversal here because... Uh, situation improves. Because yeah, the sale price is now more than the, the regular price that I used to have to right. pay before all this uh, inflation started happening. Yeah. Well, and you, people could say, well, just listen on streaming. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's another there, problem. There is that. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we're going to uh, have another six recordings uh, this week to talk about. And in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for some of these. There's a few caveats for this episode. The first recording we're going to talk about is on a Hyperion Records. Yeah. And so that's not released on uh, streaming services yet. Uh, we've heard some rumors. And yet they're, yeah, they're yeah. owned by Warner Classics now. So you would think these would be yeah. going on to uh, streaming, but we don't know yet. So anyway, I'll provide the link for the Hyperion site where you can sample the tracks and then if you like it, you can purchase it. Uh, now, the second recording is uh, Arnold Bornkamp. That's on Deezer, uh, where we like to put our full playlist. It's There's no problem on Spotify or Apple Music, but it's missing six tracks on Deezer. Five tracks. Five? I thought it was six. Anyway, because anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a lot of tracks. It's, <laughs> it's missing more, tracks more than it, more than it should be missing. It shouldn't be missing any. Mike has done some uh, deep digging detective work uh, this week to sort of figure out Indeed what's going I on. Indeed, I did. I have written to Deezer, and uh, Deezer Deezer's technique for dealing with pesky customers like me who are who are paying for their service. I'd like to uh, yes. mention is when you have a problem, they kind of write back to you almost immediately with just this empty kind of like. Um, information so you write back again and then they write back again with the same nonsense and they don't really ever solve your problem so after eight or nine emails you're just tired of talking to them you don't write back but this time i wrote to them that uh you know i'm gonna send these um i'm gonna mention this to all the record labels that i um was talking yeah. about them who were missing tracks and we'll see what they say because deezer at one point blamed the record labels they're saying well we just received them the information from the record labels or they could just receive it from some Middleman somewhere. Yeah. I don't distribute. I don't really know how it works in the uh, digital media, but uh, <laughs> I wrote to all three of the labels that I was talking about. Now, this is a big problem because we, we mentioned that um, CDs are becoming too expensive at the moment. And I just can't um, buy them, so I'm going to rely on um, streaming, which is bad enough because one of the things, if you've listened to my um, commentary on these albums, there's a lot of background on the composer, on the uh, the music itself, and those come from the CD booklets because there are some great notes. Right. On that now, I've got to hope that all of this stuff, especially for contemporary composers, are, is on the internet. It's actually pretty hard to find information about right. a lot of these people on the internet. You, we think of the internet as this great engine of information, but uh, I think you'd be more amazed at what's missing um, there. It's it's hard to get a lot of this information. Mm. So there's that's that's problem enough. But now I'm dealing with this Deezer situation of albums with missing tracks. And it seems to be only happening with uh, classical music. I've noticed right. it several times this year, because when I share the uh, the albums with uh, Russ, they're always you know from Deezer, and he'll he'll be missing tracks and yeah. you know right back to me. It's like, oh boy, what do I do? And in the past, I've been able to just send him the CD, but now I can't do that, so I don't know what's happening here. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, we wrote back and um, 
one of the labels um, that we wrote to was Beasts, and they're, they're wonderful. I really like them. When they put out albums, too, they're just in excellent sound. They put out SACDs. They're really adventurous, and they have great mm. recordings, too. And they've featured quite a few times on our podcast, really since the beginning. But this year, we've had a few, too. And I got a letter back. Now, I didn't write this as um, an adult music uh, podcast co-host. I wrote this as a, as a customer, you know, because I was writing in response to the Deezer thing. And I wrote to several of the labels. One of Bridge Records actually wrote to me first, and they said they'd check it out. They don't really know what's happening. And uh, Robert Von Barr of um, Beast Records, I think he's the president of the company, uh, wrote back. And he wrote a – I can't really tell you what it said because yeah. he doesn't know that I do a podcast. I, didn't, I would have wanted to okay it with him first. Yeah. But it was a pretty feisty letter. He was not pleased yeah. that there were missing tracks. Sounds like he's going to do something about it, too. Yeah, it looks like he's going to do something about it. Well, yeah. we'll see. I guess I'll be hearing back eventually. Yeah, yeah but uh, this is another issue that we have. Now, we could switch, well, because we could switch to Spotify, but what's the problem with Spotify, Russ? Well, they've never been able to deliver on their promise of at least CD quality. Right. right? So it's still compressed audio. They were supposed to come through last year, but it didn't happen. So Yeah. And uh, another issue I have with Deezer, Spotify on their classical music, the listings are actually very good. Like mm. they'll list the composer, the piece, and then you'll have the, the movement uh, tempo or you know, right. how it's labeled. Deezer only includes the movement. So I don't know who the composer is or the, uh, what the track name is. So right. I need to um, you know, go into the internet somewhere and actually see yeah. a listing of the album to figure all that stuff yeah, out. The, it's really... The the metadata is not really complete on streaming, right? Yeah. You know what they need? They need us <laughs> to do that. They need me yeah. to do that. I mean, we could yeah. go to Apple Music, but, you know, I have a network player and ne Apple doesn't allow the service to be built into the network players like Deezer mm -hmm. and Spotify does. So that means you have to use AirPlay and constantly use your phone or device as a streaming sort of intermediary. I don't right. want to do that. It's another point in the chain and using the battery. Yeah. And, you know, Amazon, I guess, is another possibility here in Japan. We'll have to see. Kobuz is supposed to come to Japan yeah. this fall, maybe so. So, yeah, Deezer, you said they had another problem with your uh, connectivity. Well, yeah, the other kind of thing is Spotify has always had a thing called Spotify Connect. And if you have any device with Spotify installed in a network player or something else, your little app on your phone automatically takes control of that as, you know, your playing device. Deezer's never been able to get that to work out, although yeah. there's been discussions of it for, you know, at least five years. So kind of disappointing all the way around. Everybody's got kind of half of a bucket with uh, streaming mm -hmm. things that we want. So why do we like Deezer in the first place? Because they have high resolution streaming. You can hear, you know, well, high quality sound. Yeah. They were yeah, the first the reason I chose them, they were the first streaming service to have C D quality in mm. Japan with a good catalog of both classical and jazz, and then to also be built into other devices. So at the right. time they were the only game in town. But mm. anyway. But they're they're being bypassed, but I'm I'm getting annoyed by their customer service. And I think <laughs> We're going to have to put them on the uh, the on-notice list. The on-notice list. i got to make right. my, my Deezer shingle here. I'm going to hang it right under Mahanas Fahani. There they are, <laughs> both of them. You're yes. all on notice. We're, we're not pleased <laughs> with Keep what we're getting from you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, enough of a rant on uh, the streaming right. situation. However, there's one more. The final album. <laughs> there's another uh, the last The last jazz choice. This is... Uh, 
we got a preview. Oh, this is a good copy. thing, though. This is a preview. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not available. There's, uh, I'll mention again when we get to it, but there's one or two sample tracks on each streaming service. When the album comes out on June 23rd, I will add that to the playlist and the links. That's what's up with the uh, playlist. There will be mostly links that will work for Spotify and Apple Music there. And once uh, the final release comes out, and if they get the other album corrected... Uh, after our complaints, <laughs> that'll yeah. be on Deezer as well. It may be weeks, though, but who knows? They might actually get on him because Beast is a very... Uh, I've heard um, interviews with uh, Von Barr, and he's um, he's really enthusiastic about the okay. label and the music. So he's really someone who should be running a record label. Yeah. He's, uh, he's He seems to be cut out for it, so I think right. he's got a lot of passion. And wherever yeah. you're listening to us now, you can also get our podcast just about on any streaming service. We're everywhere around the world on different platforms, on Deezer as well. Wherever you listen, if you don't see the full description or the recording list of information and links is not active, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there for this and all previous episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe or follow wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. And if you just take a moment, give us a ranking, click those stars, write a short review. That also helps us get listed in the recommendations and we can get new listeners that way. Also, do come and follow us on our Facebook page there. Uh, You can get extra info. This week, I put up a whole bunch of great new jazz releases every day. There were a few that just came out. So uh, if you want something new to listen to right away, if you trust my recommendations, they're all good, I promise you. Uh, You can go find them there. You can leave a message or comment as well. And if you want to contact us directly with any comments or questions, you can get in touch at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Before we get into our program, somebody else that has a nice mission is the Same Difference Podcast, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. And uh, they cover, you know, sort of the history of jazz and different versions of standards. You can hear little portions of each version each week and what they like and don't like. That's Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Opera over there. So uh, check out their podcast. It comes out every other week. Get the history and some interesting uh, perspectives on some great old jazz tunes. And there we are. Now we're going to go for our uh, 120th episode, uh, the, the next six albums. Let's jump in. Are you ready? And it's got a it's got a brass, and in fact, in my case, it's got a saxophone sort of yeah, theme, sexiness to, to it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I had done this because you had said you wanted you had a lot of sax things, and then you kind of decided to just go for brass in yeah. general afterwards. <laughs> so I had all these. You know, it's not easy to come up with sax yeah. classical albums. I just happened to have two, so I was you know, I was happy to have to have these and put them on here, and then you didn't do it. So anyway, oh, sorry about that. No, but that's okay because they're they're really interesting albums. As it turns yeah, they out. Are. And uh, as it turns out, we're going to end up the jazz with some pretty out there berry sax too. Yeah, <laughs> that recording, yeah, so that's true. All right, so the first uh, classical album we have today is on Hyperion Records, as Russ mentioned. Um, it's called Fantasy in Blue. All right, now you might be thinking, oh, I know Rhapsody in Blue. Well, you're going to hear that, <laughs> except that it's a little, uh, the arrangement's a little it's reworked, different. reworked, yeah. Yeah, it's really reworked. This is going to be an interesting thing to talk about. All right, now this album is by um, the artist star Alban Gerhardt, the uh, cellist. He plays the cello. And the Alliage Quintet, which is a saxophone quintet. Right. We have Daniel Gautier on the soprano saxophone, Miguel Valles Mate on the alto saxophone, Simon Hanrath on the tenor saxophone, Sebastian Potmeyer on the baritone saxophone. Yes, I love the baritone sax. <laughs> and 
Yang Un Bei. Jiang Un Bei. I don't know how to say this, but uh, on the piano. She's, she plays the piano for them. All right. Now, this collaboration started in 2018 when Gerhard met the Aliage Quintet backstage at the Kuhn Philharmonie. The Kuhn Philharmonie. That's the Cologne Philharmonic. After a concert featuring clarinetist Sabine Meyer. She's a soloist and she was once the principal clarinet of the uh, Berlin Philharmonic. If people know that story, um, Herbert von Karajan, back in the days when he was the uh, conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, kind of raised her into the hmm. principal clarinet chair, even though she was very young, which is in her early 20s. And this started a uh, almost a riot, I guess, in the Berlin Philharmonic. They revolted against Karajan <laughs> and the big problems ensued. But anyway, Sabine Meyer was able to turn this into a a pretty brilliant career, and she's still going, so that's really great. That was a long time ago, though. Okay, so the Persano, they say saxophonist in England. What do we say? Saxophonist? I don't know. Yeah, saxophonist. They like to say saxophonist. Mm. Kind of sounds like a... Sounds like sarcophagus. Kind of sounds like a rare animal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the soprano saxophone, uh, Daniel Gautier, gave uh, Alban Gerhard a CD of the collaboration with Sabine Meyer, and Gerhard was won over by this. And I have to say, listening to this recording, I was won over too. It's a yeah. pretty unique album. Mm. If you remember last year, Hyperion put out an album of um, the four mandolin seasons, the Vivaldi four right, seasons right. played by the mandolin. This is kind of unusual in that range in that it has like a lot of rearrangements of familiar uh, material. And I have to say, it sounds really great. The power, by the way, of the saxophones are capable of blowing the cello away, which makes this record even more remarkable because they, they sound yeah. so well balanced on mm. this recording, it's really incredible. The the uh, the balance, the, the playing in general, but just the whole ensemble sound that they get is really a, you know a, astonishing throughout. Uh, the restraint shown by the saxophonists is amazing. I don't really like the sound of that, but that's what they say on because uh, the only people I ever hear say that word are British um, <laughs> commentators. So well, I, you can I just, just do like the New York thing, you know. The sax saxophonist, player. sax player, the sax player. Yeah, or the I, I had saxist. I kind of oh. like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a saxist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll I'll try that and see how that goes. Anyway, tracks one through nine on this album, um, Piotr Tchaikovsky, arranged by Stefan Malzef, who was born in 1964. So he's like really basically my age. And this is the famous Variations on a Rococo theme, Opus 33, originally for the cello and orchestra. This arrangement takes away some of the cello's solo part and gives them to members of the quintet at times. But the cello has most of his uh, work. And by mm -hmm. the way, if that if you're if you're a uh, purist and that offends you, wait till we get to the Fantasy in Blue. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the piano here is uh, used for higher or lower elements in the orchestra. Oh, I should say right away, this is not for classical music purists, this album, because the uh, arrangements are really very liberal. And um, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, mm. on a recording, you hear this and, you know, you just go back to the um, the way these works are normally played. If you want to hear that again, it's not a problem. You just switch your CD. I, I enjoy hearing some uh, different approaches occasionally. And we certainly get that here. Okay, so this is um, this starts with an introduction. It's, it's kind of an odd... Uh, sort of um, structure to this piece because the variations don't come until um, the third track or the third part. There's an introduction and uh, here 
you're hit with the sound of the saxophones right away. They give the illusion of strings when they're massed together yes. like this. It was pretty astonishing right away. So I was like, wait, am I listening? what am I listening to here? Right. And they are indeed saxophones. Listen and be amazed. You can sample this, by the way, on Hyperion. They, have, they give you 30 seconds to listen to. So if you go to the website, you can check that out. Uh, the piano provides some bass here and some saxes play melodic figures. Then we hear the theme on track two. It's played by the cello with the saxes providing the illusion of breathy strings, if strings were breathy. So it's got a string sort of tone, but you can kind of hear the, hmm. you know, the blowing into the uh, instrument. I like the sound a lot. The saxes' actual identities come out only during their individual solo moments because when they're together, they really don't sound like a sax ensemble. It's amazing. The staccato quality and having the piano playing bass staccato underneath keep the illusion up of the uh, saxes being strings. And when they go into their high you know, range, they act as wind instruments, sounding kind of fluty and clarinetty and reedy at times, yeah. like those high reed instruments. Really amazing techniques being displayed here. And all of them with their, you know, very neat sounding with the hair neatly combed. Uh, we're going to get to another album later where we're not going to have that. <laughs> it's going it's to be the opposite approach, but it's going to be equally as good if not better anyway all right so um variation one here we go the cellist first figuration filled variation begins and it takes an accompanimental role sometimes a saxophone and piano emerge with snippets of the melody now this is all a rearrangement because this piece is for the solo cello normally with the orchestra accompanying they get little you know bits to play but um it's mostly the cello here the saxophones have a lot more to play than the orchestra does in the tchaikovsky version of this piece Variation two, quicker variation featuring the cello, uh, finishing its lines with rapid upward scales, and the piano is very present in this variation. The saxes are pretty discreet here until the 40-second mark when they take over the higher saxes sounding like a wind section. Variation three, there's a long pause before this, and then this is a longing variation played fulsomely by the saxophones. The cello comes in with the theme. There's a highly romantic passage with a crescendo, leading to a brief cello cadenza in the first minute, after which the saxes take the melody over, the piano accompanying staccato and the cello providing accompanimental figuration. And this variation ends quietly at the higher end of the cello with a final quiet stratospheric note. Variation four, the cello takes the lead in this rather comic song-like variation. It takes an impressive run up the scale before resuming its melody. Variation five, here, the higher saxes take over the theme as the cello plays a kind of uh, flight of the bumblebee type uh, figuration. It's really rapid. <laughs> the entire opening belongs to the saxes, and the cello gets a brief cadenza just after the 30-second mark and continues his wheeling figuration while the sax ensemble carries the theme. After a minute 30, there's a crescendo with the cello playing cadenza-like material again and building up tension right to the end of the variation. There's a long pause, and then we get to track eight, variation six, Andante Bluzando. All right, <laughs> this is going to take some, uh, this might take you by surprise. Now, the original variation's harmony is used here. This, so the piece progresses like the original variation does, except mm. the arranger changes the style. Um, the bluzando refers to the blues, right? And this is a slow-moving, soulful blues rhythm, which Tchaikovsky didn't write. This is the arranger doing this. The saxes add a lot of blue notes as the cello plays the theme, now sounding bluesy himself. And in the second minute, the quintets sound like a wind ensemble due to the arrangement of their sounds. 
at the very end, we hear one more bluesy figure. All right, now at this point, this is where the purists are all going to leave the room and we're <laughs> going to have a good time, the rest of us who are still here. All right, so Variation 7, Track 9, and Coda. This remains astringent and modern sounding. This is not the way the original Tchaikovsky piece sounded <laughs> at this point. The arranger wanted to inject humor into the piece. This variation is the fastest we've heard. It bursts out of the gate with the cello and saxes, all playing rapid figuration. Yeah, this is a complete almost uh, rearrangement of the of the piece. He's actually almost recomposed bits of it with new kind of um, sort of mm. emotions in it, if not new chords. <laughs> so just be ready for that, okay? If you need some cold water thrown over after you have that... Uh, Rostoprovich and carry on uh, performance of this uh, work uh, readily available. Anyway, I have other ones of that too. I'm not really sure. It doesn't get recorded all that much anymore. Anyway, tracks 10 through 12, another surprise. Antonio Vivaldi, arranged by Ital Sobol, who was born in 1976. He's a kid, the arranger. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's younger than you, I think, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, boy. Cello Concerto in A minor, RV 418, if you want to go and seek out the original version of this three movements of course vivaldi has his fast slow fast he really invented that style in the opening allegro the saxophones are imitating a string orchestra and it's pretty clear that we're not hearing that here <laughs> they don't have yeah. the rapid energy that a string orchestra can provide preferring instead to articulate the lines and their endings clearly it's got a slow baroque feel if you remember what baroque music sounded like actually this is a little faster than what i'm going to say but uh, if you remember what Baroque music was like before they went to period instruments, when you had these gigantic orchestras playing the accompaniment, they had to play rather slowly. And um, I feel like this is, eh, it's, it's, not, it's not that slow, but it's kind of going that direction. Mm -hmm. The cello has its original part, though after the one minute mark, the saxes get part of the theme. Uh, the movement unfolds as you would expect from a Vivaldi concerto. The second movement, it's not really marked, but they have Largo in parentheses. The higher saxes begin the accompanimental theme, while the very satisfying baritone sax ends it. I love the baritone sax. The piano plays a continual role, adding some percussive feel, and the cello has an appealing melodic cadenza toward the end of the second minute. It's really odd to hear a piano in this work, <laughs> let me say. There's a brief re-entry of the quintet with piano playing the melody as the saxes outline chords. In the third movement, Allegro has bubbly sax lines playing at the opening. The cello comes in smoothly to pick up that line, and the saxes really draw attention in the accompaniment, the cello sounding rather quiet next to the energetic high saxes. We hear some lovely, gentle double stopping from the cello in the last minute. He plays without vibrato throughout, which is in the Baroque style, and he blends in with the saxes well this way. Uh, nevertheless, this is kind of a, a really different sounding uh, texture to this piece, and I, I personally thought I, I liked it, uh, but I thought this was the, the weakest part of the album, if you can use that word, because I think it's a pretty interesting album all the way through. Anyway, tracks 13 through 19, we're back to the uh, early 20th century here. Manuel de Falla, arranged by Sebastian Gottschick, who was born in 1959. He's still with us, too. Siete canciones populares españolas. So six popular Spanish songs. This was uh, first, it was first for voice and piano. And it was first transcribed for violin. And now we have this cello version. And I guess the piano part has now been transcribed for the <laughs> sax quintet. The first piece is called El Paño Moruno, which is the Moorish cloth. And the piano plays the opening. The saxes play the theme. 
with the cello simply adding some accompaniment in a Spanish flavor. At 24 seconds, the cello plays the theme. The piano figures heavily in the accompaniment. Uh, we do get to hear the full saxophone ensemble in the melody in the first minute. The cello then plays it in a higher range to end the piece. These all have a nice kind of Spanish quality to them, mm. too, in the Faya style. They really have an earthiness and uh, are very satisfying for that. A lot of them are dances, like the second uh, movement, which is track 14, Seguidilla Murciana, or Murciana, I guess they'd say in Spain. Mm. A dramatic opening and a Seguidilla is a dance at this particular arrangement seems rather passionate and wild. The cello is front and center, with the piano again providing a lot of accompaniment. The saxes get their moment with the harmonized melody. Cello and piano end the piece. So really the piano is acting as the accompaniment here, and the, the saxes are just kind of coming in for their part with the cello. The, the third um, movement, track 15, Asturiana, has a haunting opening provided by an ostinato piano line and saxophone harmony in the high end. The cello plays in his low end to begin. The mood is maintained throughout with a nice soprano sax fluttering line in the accompaniment at a minute and 20 seconds. The cello plays the melody meanwhile. Movement 4, track 16, Yota. This is a lively, cheerful dance rhythm produced in the piano with the cello providing rhythm, then the theme. The saxes play the role of accompanying strings here. They blend in so well, they're hardly noticeable for a lot of the piece. There's a nice Spanish turn of phrase produced by the cello at the end of phrases. And magical sax chords and ripples from the piano are heard at the end. Movement 5, track 17, Nana. This is a lullaby. And the saxes blend to provide steady chords for the cello to melodize over. The piano provides high-end chiming notes. This is a lovely tune. Uh, movement 6, track 18, Cancion. It's a song. It has a Spanish rhythm with the piano providing rhythm and the sax's rhythmic and harmonic color. The cello carries the lilting theme. It's a brief piece at just over a minute. And track 19, uh, movement 7, or so song 7, Polo. This is an aggressive dance with rapid, repeated notes in the piano. The orchestration here is great, with the saxes playing quick chords and the cello slashing his chords along with them, giving them an edge. There's a passionate Spanish melody played by the cello in the first verse, then the saxes in the second. Okay, we move on to uh, track 20. Dmitry Shostakovich, arranged by Levon Atovmian, who lived in the 20th century. Um, this is a prelude uh, called Guitars from Ovod, or The Gadfly, Opus 97. Uh, this was a film, and Shostakovich scored the film. It starts with piano playing an upward-moving chord pattern. The cello comes in with a melody accompanied by saxes, which blends so well they sound like the cello double-stopping. It's a pretty mm. amazing effect. But it's not. It's the saxes. It's pretty amazing. The melody is sad with a bit of heaviness to it. It's memorable and full of regret. It really doesn't sound like what we expect from Shostakovich at all. I think he's um, right. writing for the film here. Track 21, again, uh, Shostakovich, arranged by Levon Atovmian. Elegy from Chilovacheskaya Komedia, the human comedy, opus 37. Oh, Russian listeners, please forgive me. I've never spoken a word of Russian in my life. Anyway, a gentle piano opening is heard here, followed by a gentle melody by cello, with the saxes shadowing the cello melody, sweetening it up a bit with their string-like blend. This is another lovely melody from Shostakovich that I didn't know existed. It's really mm. nice. Track 22 is Shostakovich again, this time arranged by Louis-Noël Fontaine. 
Waltz number two from Suite for Variety Orchestra, a piece we talked about on the podcast on, on a Shostakovich album um, last year, I believe. I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah. This is only one movement, though. It starts with a heavy bow on the bass notes of the cello, and uh, the cello quickly rises to the higher end and plays a sweeter melody. And this begins as a straight waltz melody with a bit of schmaltz to it. The saxes soon come in and play the melody, also adding some decoration in the form of upward scales to the theme. The cello plays the next section's melody. At a minute and 48 seconds, we get yet another waltz theme, all of them attractive. It's always fun here when the saxes take over the theme. They tend to dress it up in amusing ways. And um, I think there's a, I don't know that sardonic is the right word, but this is um, an era when the waltz is becoming rather overripe let's say it's mm -hmm. kind of it's the tradition is disappearing so um it's kind of playing a funny way okay i really wish i could uh, take a belt of bourbon at the moment but i have no booze <laughs> in the house because this next piece oh boy how am i gonna explain this george gershwin everybody knows his famous rhapsody in blue but this is an arrangement by stefan malzu of that piece called fantasy in blue and it's just as well that they changed the name of the piece because <laughs> They changed the piece as well. Now, please, all of the familiar melodies are there. But we think of this as what? A, a piano piece, right? It's a, it's a yeah. piece for piano solo. And there is a piano in it. But the piano plays almost none of the solo yeah, piano lines. Yeah. It all goes to the cello and sax. It's really an amazing sort of feat of arrangement. Yeah, musical chairs. That was He was able to do this. Um, all right, let's just talk about it first, and then I'll make any comments at the end. Anyway, it's similar in length to the Tchaikovsky, so it provides a good bookend to the program. This is the last track on the album, track 23. It's a good bookend because it has a rousing finale, too, as we all know. The piece opens with the cello playing the famous clarinet glissando after some opening <laughs> agitation. Incidentally, I should mention that uh, clarinet glissando is not in the score. It's actually a, a run. And uh, the cellist uh, on opening night just did it because he was famous for okay. being able to do that uh, that bend. You know, it's not mm. even a glissando; it's a bend. It's sort of All like right. that upward bending note until he hits the uh, the note he wants. So that was um, added by the uh, Paul Whiteman band member. I forget who it is now, but it's become the way the piece is right. played now. Okay, and I, I prefer it too. It's really nice. The cello does this effectively too. It sounds pretty great. It's interesting how the saxes come in with some of the clarinets line as well. The clarinet in the original piece. There's no right. clarinet on this particular uh, arrangement, of course. This is an effective orchestration. Saxes, of course, put the jazziness of the score across beautifully. There's a piano, but the arrangement gives it a supporting role, completely reversing its reason for being in the piece. One, in fact, wonders why it's in the piece at all, although it is necessary <laughs> at times. I think yeah. they need it. Without the percussiveness of the piano in the solo part, there's a change of quality, though the cello and saxes ably put the material across, or at least identifiably, and put the material across. It's interesting how the solo piano part is distributed across the saxes and cello. There's really no instrument that's the centerpiece of this arrangement. The cello is really part of the ensemble. The saxes play the famous chord theme that we'll hear again at the end of the piece, with the piano adding a bit of percussive chords beneath it for effect. This is really what the piano is relegated to, is kind of um, like percussiveness and rhythm. The bluesy passages are ably played by all the saxophones with great character. It's really a clever orchestration and a great performance with amazing balance. That's really the key word for this whole album, I would say. The cello has a bit of a solo in the seventh minute, 
started by a fantastic double-stopped chord in the bass end. High saxes ape the sound of wind instruments well. Um, Gerhard on the cello gets a lot of solo time in the ninth minute too, and when he's on his own, he stretches out his lines and loses the jazz feel. He's fine when he's with the rest of the ensemble, though, right afterwards. Uh, the piano gets its accompanimental role in the final slow, bluesy section of new material, playing the descending bass line. Later, the saxes take this over. The arrangement is colorfully realized here and really throughout. The cello has a fairly sweet sound here. It's up to the solo cello to start the rhythmic impetus that leads to the end of the piece, and we hear bubbling lower saxes accompanying, which is an appealing sound to me. The final piano part is taken by the cello, amazingly enough. It works well, but I miss the piano's glitter here. I feel that uh, Gerhard makes too much of the material at the end, stretching it out. He even does a glissando into the final statement of the melody, uh, taken quietly here, then crescendoing to the famous ending, with the piano playing its chords to the climax and the cello taking the final melody. So all in all, it's, it's a really amazing arrangement. I feel I feel like uh, Gerhard gets a little carried away at times, <laughs> but otherwise it's it's uh, overall it's really good, and so is he. I should mention just little moments where I kind of question what what he was thinking. Anyway, the styles of these works on this album are all amazingly caught and put across by Gerhard and the Aliage Quintet. It's a pretty amazing performance and a recording that captures it well. You'll hardly believe that you're hearing a sax ensemble at times. And incidentally, you're going to need to turn the volume up a bit. This is a pretty quiet recording. Mm -hmm. The program rather interestingly starts with the cello in the solo parts, but from the fire piece on, the cello morphs into being an equal member of the ensemble. The balance achieved by the ensemble is astounding throughout. This really is, like I said, something like last year's uh, Vivaldi Four Seasons for Mandolin, and oddity that really works. It's certainly not an album for purists as guaranteed to agitate them with the liberties it takes with the Tchaikovsky and Gershwin scores. But for me, there's no problem with this, just as long as these don't become the permanent versions of these that we hear from now on. It's a recording project. There are other recordings that purists will enjoy. And if you're looking for something different, check this out. It's a really interesting sound world and it's pretty astonishing playing. I thought it's a really refined blending of saxophones here. As you yeah. mentioned, sometimes they come out sounding like strings. Yeah. And sometimes they sound like a woodwind ensemble. I mean, they are, but I mean one with flutes and clarinets getting a kind of higher yeah, exactly. tone and reedy effect. A very fine musicianship, great unique blends of timbre and interesting arrangements here. They create new perspectives and make these works uh, even more fun, uh, hearing them in a new way. really yeah. changes your image of the tonal possibilities of saxophones. So, yeah, unless you're a stick-in-the-mud purist about these, I think you'll have a good time listening to these uh, because uh, they sound really nice. Yeah, I'm really funny as long as I have – I'm a purist in the sense that I have to have my recordings of these pieces as I want to hear them, and then I can go off and hear them any other yeah. way <laughs> people want to play them. Anyway, speaking of um, the way we should play works, the next uh, recording is a cello album. So I had saxophone, cello, so now I'm going to go cello and then saxophone for the last one. So my middle, um, my second um, choice of uh, classical works this week is a set of um, works by Nikolai Miaskovsky, a composer who you should probably know better. Um, we're starting to get to know him better mm. because his... Um, Music is starting to be recorded. Um, he lived from 1881 to 1950, so he lived through the uh, the Russian Revolution in 1917 and under Stalin. So we'll get to that in a minute. 
This is um, a recording of his cello concerto, Opus 66, cello sonatas one and two, and we have some other tracks too by two of his teachers, Rimsky-Korsakov, who taught him orchestration. We hear mm -hmm. his serenade, Opus 37, and uh, Anatol Leodov, who taught him uh, a lot of things. I got a list of it here somewhere. He, two pieces, Opus 11. Uh, the cellist is Raphael Walfisch. We hear Simon Callahan on the piano and the Janacek Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Lukasz Borowicz in the cello concerto. This is on the CPO label. All right, so Miaskowski's career uh, straddles the late Romantic and early Modernist periods. And according to the notes by Patrick Zuck, there are two reasons we don't know his name better. The first is that his music has depth but doesn't spend much energy on surface appeal. Now, if you've ever heard uh, Nikolai Metner's music, um, hmm. I, that's exactly a, a good way to uh, describe him. He, he's he's all the mechanics inside, and it's just fantastic music, but there, he doesn't have those Rachmaninoff melodies that are just going to make the audience come and want to hear right. the work again and again. And that's the case with Miaskovsky as well. They're great works, but they take time to get to know. Right? You'll You'll enjoy them the first time you hear them. But, but they won't really stick. There's a lot of depth to them that takes time to probe. Uh, this was actually a thing with Russian composers. I mentioned uh, Medner, but the booklet notes also mention uh, Tanayev, another uh, Russian hmm. composer from the period that we're starting to discover. I have like a recording of, I think, one or two of his gigantic piano trios that are well worth hearing. You know, they're really great, and they're just full of ideas. So Tanayev, Medner both suffer neglect because their lack of very obvious and uh, uh, melodies not the case with Rachmaninoff or Prokofiev, who was a lot more uh, adventurous, but still had yeah. a great ear for melody himself. Miaskovsky's music takes time to get to know. Uh, the second reason, you can guess why, <laughs> what the second reason is. The cloud of ideological opprobrium created by Soviet commentators uh, who faulted his earlier compositions for their alleged modernist decadence and criticized <laughs> his later work for its insufficient adherence to socialist realism. Oh, man. Uh, Shostakovich suffered from this, too. His compliance, or Miaskovsky's compliance with socialist realism was essentially a matter of lip service. He never joined the Communist Party and held himself aloof from politics. How he was able to do that, I really can't tell you. I think Shostakovich couldn't do it because he was just so well-known, and Miaskovsky wasn't as famous, I guess. But uh, he managed to uh, escape a lot of this. Hmm. A lot of well, he got the opprobrium, but he didn't. Uh, he didn't have to like join the party or things like that. I don't know how these things work uh, there. How you can even avoid that? But he originally trained for a career as a military engineer, uh -huh. uh, following in the family footsteps. Now, Russian composers are funny like this. Borodin did something similar. He was a doctor, and he composed right. in his free right. time, and he became this really. He wrote some really great works. Miaskovsky eventually studied composition at the St. Petersburg Conservatoire, and he's written a lot of works, a lot of symphonies, I, I believe, too. And they're all really good, and they're worth getting to know. If they're comfortable on the ear, they just don't have uh, any uh, sugar added. So you're going to have to, uh, <laughs> you know, you're gonna have to get used to those um, exotic sauces that he's using. Anyway, the first work we hear is the Cello Concerto in C minor, Opus 66, written in 1944. And uh, that year should... Um, imprint itself in your mind. That's a year before World War II ended. Russia was very much, or the Soviet Union, I should say, was very much embroiled in this, and it was a real horror for them. This um, work is marked Lento Manontro. It's in two movements, first of all, but it kind of, it's like a long, like, sonata movement. 
it's it's kind of odd how it's um shaped actually i think that might be the cello sonata this is the cello concerto okay so this starts with a slow pulsing chord on the strings reeds play the opening melancholy theme the recording here is highly detailed and rich sounding this is a really good mm. recording and um well capturing the orchestra the solo cello enters just before the second minute playing the opening theme over satisfying pulsing low bass and cello sound quality here is rich the music is stark yet melodic the theme is heavy and russian sounding there are some lovely orchestral touches as the timbres peek out and then disappear back into the orchestral bushes uh, listen to the accompanying high winds after 440 for example there's a passionate theme starting at around the five minute mark that Walfish puts all of his feeling into and draws out marvelously. At 547, he begins a cadenza with powerful double stopped chords, getting a full, heavy, characterful sound. He's really digging the bow into the strings there. At 705, the orchestra comes back in and the cello reverts to the opening melody in what sounds like the recapitulation of a sonata form movement. Only instead of a development, we've had a cadenza. Uh, so this is kind of like an odd sonata, mm. this movement. The entire movement maintains its melancholy tone, and Valfish plays beautifully throughout, phrasing sumptuously, producing full rich tone throughout. He gets a little solo lead-up melody to the final cadence, which is touchingly quiet. Second movement, track two, uh, Allegro Vivace, and then it goes on to other places. This is a rather large rondo movement at 17 minutes. <laughs> long hmm. and the theme has a rushing russian theme it's like think of a brook kind of you know rushing by or um flowing by it's much more lively than the first movement a total contrast to it the cello comes in after 30 seconds with the theme that's a dramatic departure from the theme in the first minute this melts into a heartfelt and highly romantic cello theme at around 215 the orchestra takes over so the cello can engage in an accompanimental figuration in the second half of the third minute. The cello gets another brief solo at around 4.30, which leads to a new section. I've actually forgotten at this point what the opening rondo theme sounds like. I just remember it was <laughs> rushing and fast. And I think it might be coming back in different guises, not with the same rhythm and uh, tempo as at the opening. But again, this is like... I mentioned at the beginning, this is a work that has to be heard several times to you know, yeah. pull all of its detail out. At 727, we hear the rondo theme over a rather aggressive rhythm, so I'm recognizing it here, with twittering flutes over it. So he reorchestrates the, the rondo theme when it comes back. Again, at nine minutes, we get themes being handed around the orchestra, and some interesting orchestral colors are heard in this section. The cello eventually gets the melody and plays it again. At 10.54, there's a cadenza with pizzicati and double stops and little rhythmic drive until reintroduced by the soloist around 11.15. It's dramatic and ends at 12.50 with pulsing chords in the brass. The strings play the opening theme. At 14.39, the cello repeats the rondo theme with a melancholy feel. A brief coda follows, leads up to the final cadence with the cello going into its stratospheric range as the orchestra provided cadence. This is a good, satisfying work, and it'll probably get better on repeated listenings. And I think that's true, really, of all the works on this album. Tracks three and four are Cello Sonata. Number one, a sonata is going to be for cello and piano in D major, opus 12. This was written 1911 to 1912, so before the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. This starts with a low piano bass note, and the cello winds out the melody. The theme is rather low-key and has a bit of heaviness to it. The piano interestingly keeps tolling the same bass note like a bell. 
then comes in with a melody and arpeggiated accompaniment, playing solo until 117 when the cello comes in for the melody. There's a warmth to the piece at this point. The cadence is reached at 210. Then the piano suddenly brings the key downward and starts a new staccato two-chord rhythmic pattern that the cello responds to lyrically. The piano gets another solo section. Then the two trade the melody back and forth. There's a tension buildup at the end of the third minute that forms sort of a tension arch. It decrescendos to 442 when we hear the opening theme again in the piano with the cello first accompanying with winding strings, then grabbing the melody and playing it with great passion. Uh, the cello goes up high, then brings the melody down with a softening of tone, resolving to the tonic at 540, then stretching to a final cadence. The piano plays a lot of resolving chords, then breaks it up as if an intro to the next movement. There are dramatic chords heard, and then we're in the Allegro, Appass the Allegro Passionato, the second movement. This movement is launched into without a pause, and is active and played forte with energy. It's got more movement to it than the first movement, the cello's theme is appealing here. There's a slowing down after the first minute mark is passed. Then a more poignant theme starts at around 135 in the piano. Momentum of the opening has stopped here as the music gets more meditative. By 239, the cello is soaring in its melody, then quietens down and heads to a resolution at 315. The piano cadences to the tonic at around 320, but immediately takes off in a new, stormier direction. This often happens. Tonics are not lingered on in this movement. A new cadence is pursued in the fourth minute, but we hear instead the theme played on the cello in the opening seconds of the fifth minute. At 6.10, the piano starts the second tranquil theme, this time solo. The cello repeats it at 6.29. There's a very pretty cadence at 7.58. And then the piano immediately shifts key and starts something new, which leads directly again to the opening theme of the movement. It's broken up into tension-building harmony. The cello heads to its high end. The piano plays some loud, heavy chords at 9.30. And the cello comes in with a lighter, soothing melody in response, gently drawing the movement toward the final cadence. The piano again gets to the cadence after the cello. And then the cello builds to a final high note, with the piano providing the tonic harmony. Okay, we get a bit of a break here with three brief pieces by some of Miaskovsky's teachers. First is uh, Anatoly Lyadov, Prelude, Opus 11, Number 1. Uh, Lyadov was Miaskovsky's teacher in harmony, counterpoint, and free composition, whatever that is. Hmm. The two works here are originally for piano solo. Uh, these are transcriptions of them. And this piece is very lyrical with a lovely melting cello melody. These works act as a break between the two Miaskovsky cello sonatas. It's brief at 3 minutes 3 seconds but features lovely playing by Volfish all the way through, who remains the center of attention throughout. Lyotov's ne the next piece, Mazurka, Opus 11, number 3, from the same set of piano works. Uh, this is track 6. The solo cello starts this out. The rhythm is well portrayed by both cello and piano. It sounds like a dance and features dramatic moments. It's in ternary form, ABA, and I like the way the dramatic moments contrast with the lighter dance moments. Track 7, Rimsky-Korsakov, Serenade, Opus 37. There was no better orchestrator than <laughs> Rimsky-Korsakov at the time. And uh, af after him, there were a lot of them, probably because of him in a lot of ways. Stravinsky taught him. And uh, no, um, he taught Stravinsky, sorry. He taught Miaskowski as well and others. Um, this piece was written after a difficult period of Rimsky-Korsakov's life, yet it's cheerful and full of lively melodic phrases. 
This beautiful playing here by the duo. I've been enjoying Volfish's shaping of his lines throughout. And in these small pieces, he can put the ability firmly on display. There's a lot of invention in the material surrounding the galloping rhythm and sunny theme. Track 8 through 10, probably my favorite work on the album, actually. Cello Sonata number 2 in A minor, Opus 81. This work was composed in 1948 to 1949, after Mieskowski was publicly censured, along with Shostakovich, Prokofiev, and other notable figures in a central committee resolution for the decadent modernist tendencies supposedly in evidence in their work. Oh man, this podcast would definitely be out the window if we were around at the time. Uh, to his credit, Mieskowski never made a public apology. This is astonishing. I don't know how he, wow. he can get away with that at the time. Or spoke at any of the forums convened to discuss the Central Committee edict, ignoring the pressure on him to do so. Now, he must have really been some kind yeah. of a personality to do that because there, there would have been a lot of pressure yeah. on him. At the time, 21-year-old Mstislav Rostropovich, who, undeterred by the Central Committee resolution, rallied to Mieskowski and Prokofiev's support and undertook to perform new works by them. Yes, that is what a great cellist does. Mieskowski would die in 1950 of stomach cancer, only a year after this work was completed, but postponed surgery to compose this work. So anxious was he to fulfill the commission that uh, Rostropovich made for him. It's a three-movement work. The first movement is Allegro Moderato. At the beginning, piano arpeggios underpin a cello melody, a bit reminiscent of Faure's piano trio, if anybody knows that work, mm. the, the opening movement. It's lyrical and the melody stretches upward, the piano coming into the melodic development after the opening. It's a pretty theme. We hear it again in the first minute, then a climbing theme comes in before 2.45, the piano taking over the melody briefly. The cello's pizzicati during the piano's handling of the melodic material in the third minute really rip out of the speaker. It's very present. Uh, the sound throughout the album has been excellent with great clarity on both cello and piano. The movement is melodic and appealing throughout with some harmonic weight to it. I really like the hushed dynamic at the end of the fifth minute and into the sixth minute. The second movement, Andante Cantabile, is song-like at the beginning. It's the head to the dramatic outburst in the fifth minute. The drama remains, building and ebbing. A lot of middle of the movement stays at a forte and begin and finally lets up at 345 when the opening material returns. There's an interesting sudden key change at 5.20 as the movement is heading towards its end, but it gets redirected to the final cadence. It's an interesting movement, but, you know, however straightforward it is, there's a lot of uh, interesting things in it. The third movement is Allegro con Spirito, and the cello has a perpetual motion line at the beginning of this piece with a few bow lifts for new phrases. The piano plays a driving rhythm via percussive chords. The movement moves like a rondo, the first between phrases a bit slower, but dramatic in its forward dynamics. The piano moves to the forefront as the work goes into the second minute playing rapid passage work. So the cello and piano both have um, their moments in the spotlight. Cello returns with lyrical playing at 2.40 and afterwards, then back to rapid passage work for the return of the opening. At 4.30 or so, there's another lyrical detail for both cello and piano. At 5.33, the cello's opening perpetual motion figuration comes back, and the piano plays chords and rushing figures, building up tension that lets off to a quick decrescendo and a high, quiet cello note that has us suspended on its tone before the final chord in line is hammered out. 
this is really an excellently played and recorded album of some really excellent music that simply isn't heard enough. It's all good, but I'd head straight to track eight, the first movement of the second cello sonata. But if you want to sample, listen to that. Raphael Walfish, Walfish has an excellent sense of melody, and his shaping of his lines and his tone are captivating throughout. Uh, Simon Callahan's piano is clearly captured, sounding very three-dimensional, and he proves to be a sensitive partner, completely in tune with his uh, cello partner. The concerto also comes off well, the cello cadenzas registering powerfully on the recording, and the orchestra sounding full-bodied. You really can't go wrong with this. It's an album of excellent, mostly lyrical cello playing, a music it would be great to get to know, and it's going to invite repeated listenings too, so that you can just get all those details you missed the first time. I feel Miyakovsky has a romantic heart. Maybe, yeah. Because, uh, and one foot in more modern leanings. Of course, that had to be tempered with the political situation, although he seems to have stood up to that pretty strongly. But the content of his um, melodies are, they're very moody and extremely Russian sounding, and they really bathe you in them. At the same time, they're not indulgent or kind of overly sweet in any way. And the compositions themselves have lots of contrasting material to the more flowing melodies. So I found them interesting. And Wolfish's tone is great. It's a really rich, yeah. uh, wonderful phrasing and interpretations of these. So if you're like me and you really love cello, it's my favorite string instrument. This is a definite recommendation. And as Mike mentioned, they probably take a few listens to get sort of the melodies and uh, the structure stuck in your head. And, you know, the the second time I listened to it, I enjoyed it even more. So. Yeah, even better. And yeah. out, you can buy an album, you want to listen to it again and again, you get new stuff out of it every time. Right. Perfect. All right. The th- my third and my favorite album of three <laughs> very good classical albums, really, is a um, an album on the uh, genuine label or genuine. I don't know how you'd mm. say this, but it's no G-E-N-U-I-N. I think it's genuine. Folie de baritone works for baritone saxophone. Well, that's all I needed to read before I knew I had to hear this. I had no idea if it was going to be good or not and didn't really care. I just wanted to hear the solo baritone saxophone and now uh, <laughs> an instrument I really love. All right. The uh, baritone saxophonist, to say it as an Englishman would is Arno Bornkamp, and uh, he's quite a player, I have to say. So anyway, I learned from the booklet notes of this, I have the CD of this one, that the first saxophone, built by Adolf Sax around 1840, was a low sax with a range of today's baritone sax, which is comparable to the cello. Who knew? I I didn't know. I I just figured it was a tenor or an alto sax or something like that. But no, it was the big baritone sax. Interestingly enough, Camp says that listening to Zoltan Kodai's Sonata for Cello Solo in February 2018 made him realize that the saxophone repertoire needs pieces of that class. It's funny he would get that from Kodai's cello, Sonata for Cello Solo because the baritone has a comparable range. Right. Hmm. He wants some um, pieces that where the instrument and its possibilities are used fully without being too crazy. <laughs> These are his words. <laughs> and yet are sophisticated enough to appeal to a relatively broad audience. Yeah, this album has some effects. I wouldn't go as far as calling them crazy, but they start getting out there, but they don't go too far. I really enjoyed that about it. There's one that I have an interesting description of, yeah. All right, you'll have to let me know when we come to it. 
So Bornkamp uh, took the initiative to have new music written for the baritone saxophone. He approached his former colleague from the Aurelia Saxophone Quartet, Andre Arens, and together they created a multimedia performance called Little Bighorn. Uh, (laughs) Many of the pieces written for Little Bighorn are on this album, and the CD is organized according to the composer's nationalities, two from each country, so we get to do a little world trip Mm. on this album too. With a short piece by one composer, so to speak, as a prelude to the longer piece by the other. And then there's a piece by uh, Marin Marais, the Baroque-era viola da gamba player and composer, acting as a centerpiece or a resting point, according to Bornkamp. All right, the first piece we hear, now remember, it's going to go short piece, long piece, and two people from the same country. Yeah, he cheats a little at the beginning. First, we get uh, George Kurtag. Uh, who's um, born in 1926. He's uh, approaching 100. That's pretty amazing. Wow. He's 90, what is he? I guess he's 96 now or so. Six or seven, yeah. Yeah, six or seven. This is called um, George Crew in Memoriam for Baritone Saxophone, written in 1997. Kurtag was born in Lugaj, Rom- Romania, but uh, his parents were Hungarian, and so was he, I guess. Crew was the Hungarian musicologist who Kurtag had been friends with since their time together as students in Budapest. Crew's musicological, I hope he's say, I'm saying his name right, uh, musicological principles profoundly inspired Kurtag, who wrote this piece during a stay in Amsterdam in 1997 when he learned of the death of his friend. The simple, slowly descending lines seem to represent the uncertain footsteps into another world. And I kept that in mind when I listened to this. We hear a smooth tone from Bornkamp. We hear a bit of the reed on changes of notes, which is satisfying to me. The piece consists of slow, even, downward-moving patterns. It's very quiet and tranquil, like we're going into the basement or into the underworld, I guess. At around 152, the direction momentarily reverses. And I'm wondering if this is the golden section, because it's just a sudden change and then it starts moving downward again. So I wonder if it's marking the golden section there. There's more upward movement at 250 or so and afterwards. The very slow bass notes get some reedy texture, a sound I love. Bornkamp's tone remains tranquil throughout. Then we get a piece by uh, Peter Vi, born in 1987, called Vlecht, which means braid. And it was written in 2020. Vi... I hope I'm saying his name right too, is Dutch, but also Hungarian on his father's side. He's a saxophonist himself. I guess a saxophonist. I got to keep to that. (laughs) And is a driving force behind the Berlage Saxophone Quartet. Vlecht was written for Bornkamp, who is Vi's former teacher. So this is his student writing a piece for him. The work is formed of three layers, each giving its own space by being introduced as separate episodes. The first is marked Verstilt, which means stilled, and features almost poetic timbres. Lyrish, or lyrical, which uses the high register of the baritone sax, and robust, or robust, with a rhythmically repeating introverted motif. You almost don't notice the um, transition from the previous track to this, because this one starts as quietly as the other one Mm. ends, uh, with gentle crescendos from pianissimo to pianissimo. The sustained tones are ghostly at this volume, We can hear the breath being blown into the instrument at times. At one minute, the tone becomes more expressive with coloring, and we hear a little more of the sounds the baritone sax can make. At 155, two tones are produced, one of them a higher gurgling sound. I don't know the names of these techniques, so I'm just going to describe what they sound like. 
It's heard loudly as a single note at 223 and further on, so you can sample that. There are some satisfyingly reedy bass and honks. At 407, there's a pause. I actually like honks on the baritone sax. They have this, <laughs> they really come out, you know, three-dimensionally. The piece then continues slowly at the tempos it's, it's been at. I should say they come out resonantly, right? New techniques are heard, most of the rough-edged variety to contrast with the smooth tone that most of the piece is composed with. It strikes me that this is the second lyrical section of the piece, but there's a lot played in the low end along with some excursions into the high end. I really can't tell when these sections change. I have to say the more lyrical reedy low end blasts into the seventh minute, and these are the sounds I love most about this instrument. There's a trill after 810, and it seems that around 820, we're getting into the third robust section of the piece. There are a lot of trills here, especially in the ninth minute. At 920, we're hearing a faster repeating motif. This is clearly in the third section. I'm not sure exactly where it starts. Anyway, the three divisions are knitted together into a whole sonically, and the character of the piece is overall the same throughout, or at least there's a slowly moving set of tones that keep being heard. There's a lot of contrast as well. Okay, you know what I loved about this album is we have um, all my favorite places in it. And the next one is Italy. Giuseppe Ruggiero, uh, 1909 to 1977. He was a 20th century composer. This is uh, Andantino Allegro for saxophone, written in 1964. This is part of um, Ruggiero's um, Ses Etudes de Perfectionnement pour Saxophone, which are concert etudes. <laughs> in which the player must demonstrate musical skills in addition to instrumental technique. Yes, I really appreciate that. You need musical skills as well as technique. This is the second etude of the set. It's in the lower end of the instrument and is lyrical and melodic. We can hear Borncap's natural tone here. It's rich and full. The recording captures its warmth well, and the, the baritone can really get some really deep sounds and that are highly resonant, lots of harmonics on it. There's something Bachian about this piece. The melodic lines are shaped like a Bach work for solo violin or cello for a good deal, though there are more modern pauses in the lines. At the two-minute mark, a dancing rhythm is introduced, and the baritone plays mostly in its middle range. The piece ends without warning on a lower, inconclusive note. And track four is Luca Francesconi, a notturno for saxophone composed in 1987. Uh, Francesconi is a contemporary composer, born in 1956. He studied with Stockhausen in the 1980s and worked as an assistant to Luciano Berio. So these are two major composers of the 20th century. Uh, this is an early work of Francesconi's. It also explores the sustained tone in the full range of the instrument. It's slow and its expressivity comes in its changing dynamics, which sometimes change from note to note. All right, on to Holland. Jan Menu. Mm -hmm. I don't know, M-E-N-U. Looks like Menu to me. I don't know mm -hmm. how to say this in Dutch. But he was born in 1962. This piece is called Bit of Bit for baritone saxophone, composed in 2021. Menu is Holland's most acclaimed jazz baritone saxophonist. He, here he evokes the images of the legendary Spanish cellist Pablo Casals who sat on a mountaintop and used his cello to give a melancholy ode to nature in the BBC documentary, Pau Casals. It seems composers take the baritone sax's rich tone they take to it immediately and want us to hear that sound. So a lot of um, these composers are giving the, the instrument long, sustained lines. Mm. And uh, 
this whole program, the way it's moving so far, this piece is a little faster. It feels like it's being thawed out of ice in a way because the, uh, the, the, the instrument <laughs> seems to be warming up and getting more active as the program goes on. It's a very interesting program. There are a lot of sustained tones on the album so far, as I said. Uh, this piece is rather melodic in its upward swooping lines, which settle downward in gradual phrases for a good deal of the piece. It's very appealing with a tranquil end. So Jan Menu, I would listen to that, track five. Jakob Tervelduis, born in 1951. Uh, long before the sun came up for baritone saxophone, written in 2020. The title is a quote of an exclamation made by a Fox News reporter on the air. Um, and he says, um, the composer says, the piece was written for and about the baritone saxophone and is an exception to the music Velduis normally composes. He uses extended playing techniques such as multiphonics, trills, glissandi, subtone, mouth rams, slap tongues, growl, and bisbigliandi. I have no idea what those last four are, but that's what he says. I'm going to have to talk to a sax player. Well, I had, uh, this is the one I had my own term for. Uh, if you ever remember in the old uh, cartoons, Bugs Bunny and whatnot, mm -hmm. when, when they would have a uh, cowboy or someone with some chewing tobacco mm -hmm. and they would spit it into the, <laughs> spit to that kind of, <laughs> Ding, kind of yeah, right, that, right. Uh, yeah, that, the bell ring at the end. Yeah. That little um, spit <laughs> kind of comes yeah. out with the reed there. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of. I wonder which, what technique that is. Maybe that's a maybe that's a mouth ram. I don't know. Not sure. <laughs> or, or a slap tongue. Yeah. Oh man, sounds sounds tough. Anyway, bisbigliandi is a, is an Italian word. It means whisper or mm. kind of a murmur. I think it's more of a murmur than a whisper. They have another really beautiful word for whisper in Italian, susurare, which sounds like a whisper itself. Yeah. It kind of sounds like the sound that you're whispering into someone's ear. Anyway, bisbigliandi in this case is uh, defined as a sound color differences due to fingering changes. Mm. It means whisper or murmur in Italian. Okay, it starts with a voice stating the title. You, you actually hear someone say the title. It's probably Camp himself. Then some fantastic low sustained blats from the saxophone <laughs> that really test the woofers on your speakers. So if you need a woofer workout, you want to play the beginning of this piece. The recording comes up rich sounding here. They really capture this sound too. The baritone sax and all its resonance. Mm. After 50 seconds, the melodic line really starts moving. Really for the first time on the album, we hear the word long pronounced. So we're going to hear the title again stated over time followed by more playing in the first minute uh the tone in this piece is really fantastic i'm just really getting into that by 216 we hear the word before and then after the sun is stated at 322 the baritone launches into its high range followed by a mouth smacking sound this is probably the one you're talking about he then says the words the sun came up at 350 and we hear lower and repeated notes followed by short phrases in the higher end the music ping-pongs between the low and high end here, There's a, which is really cool, really. I really like the way it's kind of mm. going up and down. There's a great squeal at 451, and a honking bass note is heard pinning down the harmony of the new quicker phrasing after 455 as, if, as in a Baroque work for a solo instrument. The section after six minutes has a dancing rhythm played with liveliness. The section ends with a double note, squealing in the higher end, and playing 
fully bass in the low end. After this, arpeggiated circling patterns are heard. We hear a growl just after 7.20. This has to be what he means by growl, is what we hear mm. here. And the work just peters out shortly afterwards without a full tonic at the end. All right, we need a rest now, so we get to Marin Marais uh, from Le Folie d'Espagne for viola da gamba, written in 1701. Arranged for saxophone by Maria Romas Dominguez in 1993. There are 31 variations to this, but we only get about uh, 13 of them here. Bornkamp says this work serves as a counterbalance to the rest of the material. Um, Marais, of course, wrote a good deal of his music for the viola da gamba, which is sort of like a cello. Okay, that's close to the uh, baritone saxophone's range, as we mentioned. There are more than 30 variations in the original piece, which is found in his Deuxième Livre de Pièces de Viol, and actually we hear 10 of them here. The baritone sax here does well to capture the tone, if not the huge vibrational range of single notes in the viola de gamba's tone. The sax's tone is more focused. This piece, um, several hundred years older than everything else on this album, is started without much of a break from the previous work and fits well with it. I mentioned the Baroque ending of the previous piece. It's only the pauses between variations that make us aware we're hearing it and the complete change of feeling and tempo between variations. These variations are all lyrical, some are dancey, and they fall pleasingly on the ear. There's some athletic playing on the sax just before and into the sixth minute, the most athletic playing we've heard on the album so far. And now we go to where Russ and I live, Japan. Mm. We get to hear uh, Takashi Yoshimatsu, composer born in 1953, his Eclogue Monologue, written in 1999. And this is the version for baritone saxophone written in 20, or arranged in 2021. Uh, Yoshimatsu studied technology at Keio University in Tokyo and is self-taught as a musician and composer. And he has mostly a lyrical style a lot of his music was recorded on the Chandos label in the 1990s. I remember this. There was like a real, really brief mm. vogue for his orchestral music because there was, um, Avril Parrot was big then and I was listening to Rautavara and his music is kind of soft and atmospheric in that same way. His orchestral music anyway. The Eclogue monologue is a re recitative part of the Metal Snail Suite, which Yoshimasu <laughs> wrote in 1999 for euphonium and piano. I have to say, yeah. I want to hear that version. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really cool. Anyway, Yoshimatsu's inviting lyricism is heard right away in this piece. It breaks up into short staccato patterns shortly after the first phrases, which come back just after the one-minute mark. The staccato section is heard again, then more athletic playing comes with a change of section. Pattern rushes by like a stream here, with the rich bass end sounding pleasingly. Yoshimatsu's music falls easily on the ear, and for me, is that it's most appealing here as the sound is so concentrated in a solo instrument. Tracks 9 through 11 are another Japanese composer, Ryo Noda, who I'm not really too familiar with. Uh, he was born in 1948, and his piece is called Dance, Dance, Dance for Baritone Saxophone. Boy, dance is not what I think of when I think of the baritone sax. But this is written in 2008. This is, what does it say? 2019, sorry. 2019. And the piece, Dance, 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 if you're familiar with your Japanese literature, was inspired by Haruki Murakami's 1988 book with the same title, in which the characters move between reality and a metaphysical world and thus transform their personal lives. There are three movements to this. Kiki is the first one. Uh, she's an escort in Murakami's book, 
and she's portrayed here through a seductive dance. Uh, this starts in the deep end of the instrument and climbs to the upper range. Lower notes are full sounding and satisfyingly sustained. The seductive aspect comes from the teasing pauses and lingering final notes of phrases, I guess. Uh, the music itself doesn't come across as particularly erotic or anything like that, but it's got a lot of satisfying tone in it. The second movement is called Bizarre Dance. It's got a repeating, almost obsessive motif. The music suddenly picks up in energy and activity from the first movement, and here Bornkamp shows some technique with rapid playing, mostly in the middle to higher range. Though again, the whole range of the instrument is explored. The motif suddenly stops to end the movement, and then we go to the third movement, Keep Dancing. A recognizable rhythmic motif is introduced, repeated, and after an ecstatic buildup, comes to a halt. The motif, first heard in the bass, comes close to resembling the opening of Rock Lobster by the B-52s. But it doesn't end that way. In rhythm, at least. Um, the melody continues differently in the upper range. Sighing figures are heard as slight dipping glissandos. The glissando is used often in this movement, and there's a satisfying low final bass note. And then, Russ, we return to the country of our origins, the USA. Brantford Marsalis, piece for baritone saxophone from the year 2020, movements one and two. I'm guessing there are more. This makes frequent use of the altissimo register of the baritone sax, which has a lyrical sound. Marsalis said the 11th century composer and mystic Hildegard von Bingen inspired this piece, but it really sounds nothing like her. In fact, uh, the piece starts high up, and it sounds almost like the bassoon tone at the beginning of the Rite of Spring. Uh, the work is fairly meditative, with melodies ending in thoughtful pauses. At 3.12, the second movement starts, and its melodic profile again puts me in mind of the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. At 3.45, a ticking staccato rhythm is established, which eventually grows to more complex figuration. It's a rather brief piece, or at least we get a rather brief uh, segment of it here. Track 13, the final track, is by Gregory Wanamaker, born in 1968. It's called Monology for Baritone Saxophone, written in 2018. And uh, the notes say it's based on two musical pillars, melancholy, exemplified by expressive lyricism, and virtuoso rhythm, depicted in an aggressive sardonic dance, which engage in a spirited debate with each other. The work is at times serious and humorous, but always intense. The work uses the baritone saxophone's entire tonal range. Yes, it does. It starts in the bass range, in fact, with a two-note figure that gives rise to further material. The expressive lyrical section continues in this understated style until we hit a low note at 246. Then the sax comes out of it with a rapid rhythmic figuration. Again, the composer intends sardonic in this dance, and I get a bit of that, but I guess the instrument's sound is so appealing to me that I'm focused more on the tone, and I'm not really picking up the emotion so much. It certainly doesn't sound cheerful, I'll say that. We get a few sound effects. There's one at 532 where the tone flattens out. In the sixth minute, there are rapid runs up the range of the instrument to the highest notes we've heard on the recording. From here, the material works its way down into the lower range and begins its mad dance again, which continues to the end. There's a last flourish, then a phrase that ends satisfyingly on a tonic. I found this album to be genuinely satisfying. Or should I say, saxifying. We're both fans <laughs> of the baritone sax on this yeah. podcast and of all the tones it can produce. We're Barry Saxonists. 
There's got to be a better word than Barry that. Saxons. Maybe we're, we're, I don't know. we're Barry Saxons. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I enjoyed every work on this album. I have to say, just because of the sound of the instrument. Pieces like uh, Peter Weiss' Vlecht are made more satisfying by the saxophone's tone. If I heard this on, say, a violin, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much. The sound of the instrument is exceptionally well captured and rich on the recording. And for me, this album was a learning experience as, one, as much as it was a musical one. I wasn't aware of many of the sounds this instrument could make, and I enjoyed the world tour aspect of the program as well. The program is arty and has a certain gravity to it. It's engaging both emotionally and intellectually, and you're going to have to listen to an entire album with a solo instrument, but in this case, it's no great hardship. I simply reveled in the sound throughout. Well, it's certainly an odd and but interesting program. Like you said, yeah. I, I wouldn't have been as engaged if it were on a less interesting instrument. So uh, yeah. it has that going for it. Uh, but like you say, the program has got a logical design to it and you get that little older period rest in the middle. So it's uh, kind of well thought out. And, you know, normally in popular music or in jazz, we're going to hear the Barry Sachs just holding down the low end or honking out some low notes like in the Tower of Power. Right. Or, uh, you know, blowing some muscular jazz solos. Anyway, here, this gives a different, mostly softer perspective, although there are some moments of unusual techniques and uh, other things. Mostly, you're just impressed by the range of capabilities of this instrument, and especially up in the high register and uh, some of the different tones it can make. And Bornkamp is uh, really in command of the instrument and uh, sounds like he's having a good time showing off what it can do. So, yeah, take a listen. Definitely all sax players should uh, listen to this. But if you want something a little bit different on an instrument that you are probably not going to hear again on a classical yeah. recording for a while, definitely uh, take a listen to this. Well, unless he's going to do it. Now, you said to having a good time, and I think that's key to this recording because it, this recording success because it really does sound like he's really enjoying himself and that yeah. really comes out on the recording too so it makes you uh sort of um engage more with this really sometimes difficult music yeah but uh again the tone is what draws me in and i have no problem with that so cool yeah well we're always up for something a little bit out of the ordinary on adult music we got to mix it up and uh, you're not going to get all opera or <laughs> all uh, you're not going to get any opera really like which yeah. is kind of sad maybe maybe i'll do another podcast one day that's opera but you know we'll see <laughs> right, i get somebody who's really it. into it though because i'm not gonna they're gonna have to push me through i like it but i'm not a huge i like to fan. watch it yeah yeah, um, yeah. more so all right, in this week's jazz, as Mike said, <laughs> I had originally said I was going to match up sax, but I bailed on the idea, and I went with a different uh, He left list. me high and dry. <laughs> <laughs> All of new recordings that have just come out uh, this month in June, and the idea is going to be, uh, you know, growing a little bit bigger. We're going to start out with a recording that kind of uh, swells up to a sextet, and then we're going to have two big band large ensemble recordings. So the first one is on one of our favorite labels, the Positone label, and it's by trombonist Alton Sinclair. It's called In Good Standing, and it came out on June 9th. Well, Sinclair, whose family name translates to entertainer, interestingly enough, oh, wow. is a musician with both Mexican and Turkish heritage, and so that influences his musical sensibilities. He's got a bachelor of music degree from the University of Texas at Austin. 
and a master of music in uh, performance in jazz studies from Michigan State University. And he's held teaching positions at Michigan State and Brevard Jazz Institute, among many other places. And he's shared the stage and uh, either performed or recorded with a lot of big names, Dee Dee Bridgewater, the vocalist, Rodney Whitaker, whom we've uh, covered his recordings on the podcast, Christian McBride, and a host of others, including The Temptations, The Four Tops, and Martha Reeves. How about that? It might be fun bands to play in. Uh, his mm-hmm. previous recordings, 2017, Introducing Alton Sinclair, 2021's Reconnected, and he may have one more, but I can't find it anywhere on a streaming platform. But this is his Positone debut here. So Sinclair's on trombone. We've got Diego Rivera, who we often hear in Positone recordings. We heard his own great recent release and in several other combinations. He's on tenor sax and soprano sax. Patrick Cornelius on alto sax and flute. Art Hirahara on piano and Rhodes. Boris Kozlov, bass and gets the electric bass going on a tune on here too. And Rudy Royston on drums. Uh, As always, the great Positone producer, Mark Free and engineer Nick O'Toole. We've got a really nice list of originals and uh, interesting covers and arrangements of some other jazz musicians and composers' tunes, starting out with a Tommy Flanagan tune, Minor Mishap. Well, the original by Flanagan is a swinging minor tune. That recording had, uh, let's see who, John Coltrane, Kenny Burrow, and Louis Hayes, among others. But here, they've made it into a fun Latin arrangement, starting with the Hirahara solo vamping opening for eight bars, Rudy Royston adding his uh, hits and fills to that, and then the horns, Rivera on tenor on this one, and Senkalar's trombone, just the two of them come in on the last two bars uh, to a break before blowing the harmonized melody. It's a minor 32-measure construction, kind of like a A, B, C, A, I guess, because uh, it modulates instead of repeating the A section. It's kind of same pattern, but in a, a different key there. And then the C section contrasts with a major twist, and Rivera gets the first half of that before Senkalar joins back in. And then the final melody section has another break, and they add in a new eight-measure transition section after that with snaking lines into cool triplet figures that build up the tension into a solo break for Senkalar. He bursts out in the high register here with a really energetic solo. It's a good mix of smooth phrasing, cries, and some powerful low blasts. And you'll see right away that he has a really good sense of humor that comes through in his playing. Some tricky rhythmic figures too. Check out the cool groove of Kozlov's relaxed but snappy bass figures underneath and Royston's tight tom sounds too and cool chords from Hirahara. Rivera solos next, sounding smooth with double-time lines, hitting all the changes really effectively with melodic ideas and a few bluesy touches. And then Hirahara's solo on this one has some clear ringing high register notes and lines into chords with his usual great touch. Once more through the melody and the transition section with a little slowdown and pause before a final minor chord to end it. Then we're going to go over to one of Senkalar's originals, Walk Around. This one starts with a 16-measure intro of repeating horn lines, tenor, and uh, bone again on this arrangement. Senkalar and Hirahara alternate, filling the gaps at the end of the phrases on the intro. Then they're off on a swinging melody with walking bass from Kozlov. Has fun syncopation and skips in the rhythm to mix it up on the way. 
it's built kind of like a Latin sandwich on swing bread here. Uh, there's two eight measure A sections, a contrasting B section where Kozlov and Royston switch up the feel to a Latin-y thing with a quick break, and then two more A-type sections, but with some different chords the last time at the end, into a muscular tenor solo from Rivera, swinging hard, hitting the Latin change-up in the pattern with some bluesy ideas as well, and Senkalar's after that, starting out fluid with connected phrases. He's got a lot of nice interaction with Hirahara playing off from his rhythmic ideas in there. Nice melodies and more humor with tricky slide work and some fun hesitations in his phrasing and some trills on the way too. Then Hirahara gets some bouncy and speedy lines to trade fours with tight drumming from Royston. And the horns are back in on the Latin B section, one more A section, and then a shortened form of the intro to wrap it up. A really fun original tune. Track three is a Wayne Shorter tune, Fall. It's a nice ballad tune from Miles Davis's uh, Nefertiti, 1968. Uh, a great start here with a cry from Senkalar's trombone that's synced perfectly with Hirahara's starting chord. They go on playing rubato with trombone lines and piano weaving around each other. Hirahara has some rippling, dreamy lines in there that bring in Kozlov and Royston into this free flow. Uh, this tune has... A lot of, I think, kind of 5-1 chord patterns, but it kind of achieves more of a modally type effect with the harmonies. A soft drum roll then brings in a steadier slow tempo with Sinclair floating longing melody lines with a little pitch play on the lines as well that's interesting. Nice phrasing and vibrato in Sinclair's soloing, and he can keep the upper register very soft when he wants to. Uh, the tune kind of unfurls easily, but with some accented spots and pauses from the trio. And uh, Hirahara has more ripples. And there's a nice spot where Senkalar and Kozlov uh, sync up on a line there as well. Track four is called Navy's Mood, also a Senkalar original. A cool mood for sure on this one, starting out with some funky chords. Sounds like fretless electric bass to me from Kozlov. Hirahara adds in some dreamy Rhodes piano to that, and Royston has fills and light subdivided cymbals. The horns join in with some syncopated phrases that get a stop time treatment. On this one, Patrick Cornelius is on alto uh, joining Senkalar. The unison horn lines interject with evolving rhythms and then split into different parts on more lyrical lines with a groove shift happening as well. Kozlov has a trance-inducing ostinato going on underneath. Hirahara gets a fine ringing Rhodes solo to start out. And listen to Kozlov and Royston mixing up a tasty batter of rhythms underneath. It's really great on this one. Cornelius follows on alto, sounding slinky with some scoops in his phrases and spots, and Sekalar mixes up rhythmic licks, tricky slide work, and more smooth lines with a good low blast on the way on the trombone. They take it through the melody horn line sections again with some final horn licks to finish it up. We've got another Sekalar original for five, Homenaje a Armando. It's another Latin feeling tune would match the title uh, listen to how they build up the beginning repeating rhythmic horn lines rivera on tenor with senkalar 
uh, over Royston's uh, tight hi-hat here that gets injected with short bass and low piano figures. It's very cool. Uh, it works up to a Latin piano breakdown from Hirahara with fills from Royston uh, into the horn melody line. Uh, the horn lines build up movement and force on the way uh, that have fun repeated figures in it. Uh, it's a 20-measure construction that gets repeated. Hirahara gets the solo first, and he's really charged up by the Latin groove with a driving left hand, percussive chord ideas, uh, capping off darting lines. Tsenkalar has a rhythmic and fiery solo on this one. Cool trills, speedy slide work. He makes a great climax with a repeated and then dismantled lick that's really cool. Rivera blows a forceful and energetic solo on this one as well. Then we get a fun section with those bass and piano figures we heard under the horns at the beginning as an underpinning for Royston to let loose on some drum soloing with impressive tom work. And the horns add in their figures and build it up to a final run through the melody. Great energy on this tune. Track 6, another Sinclair original, Reimagined. And just Sinkalar's trombone over the rhythm section on this tune. It has a happy loping feel to it from Kozlov's bass figures. Sinkalar takes the melody that has a three-note figure that comes back a lot and makes it quite catchy. The structure is unique with a 12-measure main section that repeats. Then there's a contrasting eight-measure section that modulates and gets some walking bass and more simple swing before we hear that first main section again. Sinkalar adds some fun ornaments on the way. Hirahara solos first on this tune with a relaxed feel and nice hesitation in his phrasing, and Sinkalar keeps the easy flow going with a nice swing feel and some cool interval licks, and he reaches up high into the upper register. He connects it back and brings it down for another blow through the melody, and some accented final phrase repeats to an unexpected minor chord ending. Track 7, another of Sankalar's originals, Mixed Feelings. This is an interesting one. It's in 6-8 and gets going with a cool bass and piano ostinato intro of 8 measures. It's two four-bar phrases with the last measure taken by long notes from Rivera's soprano and Sankalar. The minor melody is taken by great harmonized and weaving horn lines. It's modally feeling kind of with nice harmonic twists. The structure is interesting. There's a 10-measure minor section made up of a repeated 5-measure phrase, then a contrasting 8-measure more swinging section with a major twist, and then we hear the first half of the minor section again, those five bars, and then an odd 2-measure syncopated horn line to finish it up. It kind of makes it jump into the next section. And Rivera solos here first on soprano. He's got a really warm and wide soprano tone, weaves good melodic ideas, keeping things mostly in the lower register. Sankalar follows him, sounding buttery smooth and relaxed to start out. Kozlov's bass again sounds great underneath. Sankalar has some neat slow trills and a fat low blast for fun and some cool triplet ideas too, before letting things really rip with an edgier tone. And Rivera's back to join in another run through the melody. They add a little phrase to the final horn line to make an ending with some tasty piano trickles from Hirahara. Uh, I should say the notes, at least from Bandcamp, said uh, soprano sax on track four, but uh, that's an error. I believe it should be changed to track seven because that's the only tune I hear soprano sax on. All right, the next track is track eight, another original from Sankalar, Lullaby for Paw. I don't know if that means his dad, <laughs> but his mm. 
not pa, but paw, P-A-W. Uh, Sinclair gets a pickup note to start out this ballad, and he gets joined by Patrick Cornelius on flute for a very pretty tonal blend. Uh, check out the bass harmonics from Kozlov underneath that beginning. Really nice touch. The trombone and flute are harmonized and make a nice blend on the melody. It's an interesting structure. There's an eight measure section with a repeating three note idea that gets things going. Then the next section starts with the figure again. But when it gets to the eighth measure, there's an unexpected kind of dreamy harmonic change that extends that uh, phrase out to 11 measures. Lightly ringing chords from Hirohara. Uh, and a soft beat from Royston makes a bass for an inspired solo on this one from Senkalar. He makes it soar and sing, finishing up with some speedy licks and slide work. Hirohara has a ringing solo with attention to dynamics and clean high register lines. And Kozlov gets a bass solo next and really makes it sing with great melodic ideas and clean attacks. And listen to his final sliding lines up into the upper register. Great bass solo. They take it through the melody again, and instead of the dreamy modulation, this time Senkalar gets a confident cadenza, taking us through some different harmonies with fun final figures up to the last chord. Track 9, Nutville. Really great Horace Silver composition. It's from 1965, the Cape Verdean Blues. And I can see why Senkalar would want to do this, because that recording featured the great J.J. Johnson on trombone, as well as Woody Shaw's trumpet. And they've given it a cool new arrangement. Uh, there's a four-measure intro with a bass and low piano line that gets staccato horn hits. Rivera on tenor and Cornelius on alto join in on this one. And jazz fans will know this melody. Check out the snappy answering trombone line to the saxes and the groove change-ups from Kozlov and Royston below it. Cornelius solos first. Interestingly phrased ideas to get it going. Sinclair is a dizzying, playful figure to start his solo, and some rhythmic machine gun firing figures, uh, all with a real searing tone on this one. Rivera rips out a good solo here, to working some outside harmonic phrases into his lines, and Hirohara really bangs out percussive chords in this solo. Royston gets some speedy solo sections with horn punctuations, and some newly arranged horn lines with exchanges, and once more through the melody to a short ending section that wraps it up. And track 10, back to Senkalar's original composition, Marina's Arrival. Uh, just Senkalar's horn on this one over the rhythm section. An easygoing tempo with a snappy bass line from Kozlov under the syncopated trombone melody that has fun descending lines in it. It's a similar structure to previous tune, one that he seems to like. There's a main melody section of 12 measures. Uh, when it gets to the seventh measure, it takes a harmonic twist and goes for a little detour. That section repeats... Then there's a contrasting eight-measure section with a fun double-time giddy-up kind of Latin feel to it. Nice bass change-up from Kozlov in that section. And then the main section comes back again, but this time with a fun descending final line into Senkalar's solo. Uh, lots of fun rhythmic change-ups to navigate, and he really sings out on the trombone. This is such a great rhythm section. <laughs> we, we love these guys. Uh, yeah. Hirohara follows him uh, getting way up high on the keyboard with some trills, very classy playing. Uh, I really like the triplet ideas he finishes up with and the little Ellington-esque flourish he adds once Senkalar returns with the melody. Don't miss that. And that ends up with some uh, final phrase repeats and... Senkalar really makes his tone sing to the end. We're going to wrap up the recording with a tune called Do It from P. 
pianist and composer Jack Wilson, and this tune will make you want to do it. Uh, this is from 1967's Easterly Winds that featured Lee Morgan on trumpet, alto sax Jackie McLean, and uh, trombonist Garnett Brown. Here, Hirohara gets things going with a super funky piano star. Oh, it sounds so good. He's good throughout this album, really. Yeah. Cornelius on alto, Rivera on tenor sax, and Senkalar get all three horns. Sounds really thick, taking the bluesy melody together over Hirohara's funky chords. Uh, it's a 16-measure kind of melody with a fun horn break in the 13th and 14th bars. It sounds so good that they have to play it again. Uh, <laughs> Sinclair is out of the gate with a repeated riff into his solo. Lots of rhythmic fun and ripping phrases with a crazy final break and blast to end it. Cornelius starts his solo with some sassy phrases, getting more of a hard bop idea going. And Rivera mixes bluesy crying phrases with more hard bop phrases, uh, really blowing it out on this one. And then Hirohara has some harmonic fun first, and then gets into more percussive playing with a fun break in his solo too. Once more through the melody, this time they stick on the break for a few repeats, and Royston gets to stretch it into a final amen cadence with some final thoughts from yes yeah, i heard that too plagal yeah. cadence there right yeah. god it's like out of classical music wow that you don't hear that often yeah <laughs> a super fun recording sinclair's got great technique and power on the trombone but he also has a sensitive side for ballads a malleable tone with either an edge to cut through or that soft longing tone that only a trombone can convey his solos are inventive and exciting. He also shows a great sense of humor with tricky licks and blasts that show he's having a good time, and you will too while you're listening. I enjoyed the choices of other jazz covers here a lot. Tommy Flanagan, Wayne Shorter, Horace Silver, great arrangement on Nutville, and the funky Jack Wilson tune. Sinclair's originals have good catchy melodies and interesting structures. Latin grooves, driving swing, ballads, and some funky fun make a nice balance good mix of material. Rivera and Cornelius help make the horn lines and arrangements thick, adding great solos and a nice mix of tones with soprano, sax, and flute in the mix. And then there's our favorite rhythm section of Hirohara, Kozlov, and Royston. Amazing playing as usual and really exciting solos from Hirohara. And of course, we're going to need this in the physical CD collection <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I guess eventually. I'm gonna... <laughs> I'm eventually going to need it too. It's on a list. Um, yeah, this is, um, now normally when I listen to these records, I'm kind of listening to them at a lunch break or, um, you know, after work and I'm sort of like, oh, I really hope this is going to match my mood or kind of do something like that. But in this case, it didn't matter. It just brought me along with it. Yeah. I just kind of liked it a lot. You kind of think, um, you know, I actually went into this thinking, oh, I've heard like Boris Kozlov, Rudy Royston. I kind of think I know what it's going to sound like. But no, this was actually different. It turns out that uh, Alton uh, Sankalar has, has a real personality, and he's, yeah. he's a bit funny too. And he really just kind of subverted my expectations, let's say, in a really pleasant way. First of all, the harmonies in these pieces by the brass—they kind of strayed out of the key they were in. And I really enjoyed that. It was really a strange kind of harmony. And then they would, you know, they would kind of snap back. They would just kind of go out of the mm. the harmony that they were in a lot. I'm thinking of the harmony in the main theme of track two and the opening of track three, if you okay. want to kind of know what I'm talking about. I may not be using the right words here. But uh, I like to say Kalar's a melodic sense. And it's, you know, like you said, his sense of humor. He'll yeah. go for those really low kind of you know bursts of tone in, in the low end and things yeah. like that. And he's beautiful when he wants to be too. Yeah, he has a cheeky sense of humor. I like this solo on Navy's mood, especially with his repeated notes launching into interesting and energetic ideas. And of course, Hirohara on the last track, I thought was really uh, at his yeah. best. 
Mm. Uh, a lot of great stuff on this record. Um, it's uplifting too. I mean, it really did kind of yeah, lots of make me forget what here. I was doing when I was listening to it, and that's always a good sign. Sure. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, this will have to be a CD. Yeah. Uh, I am, mean, um, you know, Positone comes out with lots of releases and of course mm. they have this great kind of uh, rhythm section. And mm. so I can't like talk about everyone or it would just have a whole Positone podcast. Yeah. But um, I skipped over um, the uh, Idle Hands uh, last one. But when I saw this one, I said, oh man, I'm not going to skip over this one. And so, yeah, great work on Positone. Again, I like almost everything I hear uh, coming out from that label. And so maybe that could be our... Yeah, that could be our side project, another podcast. What's yeah. new from Positone? You know, and just kind of talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Posipod. <laughs> Definitely like everything. Yeah, I have liked everything I've heard from them too. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. All right. The next recording is, uh, boy, it's uh, going to bring back lots of memories in, for the podcast and uh, also for my music development as well. Give me a little chance because we focus on all new recordings, you know, so we, right. we don't really talk about... Uh, the old uh, except in relation but this recording is uh, by a couple players that we've heard before on the podcast the wonderful italian pianist enrico pieranunzi trumpeter belgian trumpeter bert joris and they're together with the frankfurt radio big band for a recording called chet remembered on challenge records this came out june 2nd and of course that's the great chet baker uh, one of the greatest natural senses of melody and phrasing ever to uh, be born into a trumpet player. Uh, of course, you know, Chet Baker's quite famous uh, ever since he was uh, up and coming. Listen to any of his recordings uh, from the early 1950s. You'll get that natural sense of melody, uh, really nice trumpet chops, and all the recordings he made with uh, Jerry Mulligan and uh, Art Pepper. My other favorite picks of Chet Baker recordings, because there's too many reissues and mm. lots of things that are hard to uh, figure out where they originally came from. 1958, Chet Baker in New York. That's on original jazz classics, basically playing with uh, Miles Davis's rhythm section. When I was young, I transcribed every solo on that <laughs> recording. I think there's one fair weather I really fell in love with, uh, and I knew how to play them all. Uh, also, 1975, not his own recording, but with uh, Paul Desmond on Jim Hall's Concerto on Columbia. That's a famous jazz album. The playing of the horns on that album is great. And, you know, Chet Baker kind of had a exploding start of a career. Of course, he had a lot of other problems with uh, substances and things that uh, gave him some difficulties mid-career. But then he came back in a big way. Uh, 1987, great recording if you can find it, Chet Baker in Tokyo, it's on the Evidence label, shows him playing with a lot of energy and a lot more speed than he had even you know played in recent years. And then what's believed to be his final recording, 1988, My Favorite Songs, Volumes 1 and 2, The Last Great Concert, that's on the Enya label, it's a double CD, also features Herb Geller on alto sax and the NDR big band and a full string orchestra. <laughs> and it's a wonderful treatment to Chet Baker's playing. He sounds really inspired. And, you know, that's in a big band setting, which makes this album, you know, attractive to me. He was playing really uh, well. Unfortunately, he died two weeks after in uh, Amsterdam in uh, 1988. So how he fell has never really been uh, completely figured out. But it doesn't seem like it was something he would have done to himself because he was actually playing at a high level. Uh, at the end of his career. Uh, as far as uh, 
this match up we've got here. We've heard these musicians uh, before, back in uh, episode one, uh, Hello World, The Real You on Stunt Records. We had- uh, That was our first ever episode, wasn't it? First ever episode. And that was um, Piero Nunzi with uh, Thomas Fonsbach. Yeah. And then in the second episode, (laughs) we we did- uh, We went right to Bert Joris, yeah. Yeah, and there was uh, Piero Nunzi duo recording with Bert Joris. And uh, so- is coming back. And we've also heard uh, Pierre Nunzi one more time with uh, Thomas Fonsbach on Piano Paisans. Uh, that right. was episode 63, Something Tomorrow on Storyville Records. So Pierre Nunzi says of this recording, this CD has a very special meaning for me. Remembering Chet takes me back to 1979 when I first met him. That meeting would soon prove to be a turning point in my musical life. Playing together, sharing concerts or recording sessions with him allowed me to be in close contact with an artist of rare jazz experience who caused an enormous change in my playing. Many of the tunes on this CD come from those important years of collaboration. They do... You can uh, go back to 1979, 1981 tune is all from that. Many of these tunes come from Soft Journey. And this album is kind of hard to find now, but there was a 2007 reissue that has a lot of these tunes. I couldn't find it on Amazon US or Japan, only used. You can probably get it used in Japan, uh, but you can find it on streaming and Deezer has it. Uh, (laughs) Also, uh, look, 1987... Uh, Silence. This is uh, from bassist Charlie Hayden. It's on Soul Note. And that has uh, Pierre Nunzi and Baker together. And then they did a duo recording, 1988, called The Heart of the Ballad. And that's a really nice recording. Uh, So take a look for uh, those recordings if you want to hear some of the original work that Pierre Nunzi did with Chet Baker. As I said, on this recording, we're going to have uh, some of those compositions and others. They're all original compositions by Pierre Nunzi, and Bert Joris did all the arrangements of the tune. And one reason I recommend you go back, uh, listen to those originals, you can see what he worked with and to make these fine arrangements. Uh, anyway, to start out the recording, we're going to get a new tune, and it's called uh, From E to C, so from Enrico to Chet is the meaning mm-hmm. there. And uh, it's a great intro here to get things going with staccato trombone notes. And the saxes come in swinging over this kind of even four-beat feel that the bones start up. Uh, The rest of the band comes in with the trumpets building up to a scream. And then the drums are marking out a 6-8 rhythm that lays over that still staccato trombone in 4 for a bit. So you get this dual kind of uh, rhythm going on. Joris enters with the happy and lyrical melody line. Soft saxes weave below him. And Pierre Nunzi gets a solo next, uh, building off some fun interval play. Very nice rhythmic and melodic ideas with a punchy left hand. Suddenly everyone drops out except for the trombones, back with the staccato notes for Joris to solo over. Sounds very lyrical. The saxes and drums join in for backing. Then the rhythm shifts back to the 6-8 from the 4 feel again. Pierre Nunzi gets a percussive solo piano interlude. The trumpets get their moment to shine on a nice arrangement, building up to a scream. And then it comes Mm. down to a soft sax soli section uh, for Jean-Paul Hochstetter to do some drum soloing around the fun offset rhythms in the saxes that get joined by the trumpets. And then full band back into another melody section from Joris. 
then some improvised interplay between Joris and Pierre Nunzi as the arrangement floats along. Some snappy bass lines take it to a soft sax chord to end it. Uh, so I couldn't find the full personnel of uh, the big band <laughs> anywhere, but the soloists are noted on the CD. So, Track two is Lost and Found. A swinging tune with a familiar standard kind of quality to the melody. Pierre Nunzi starts its solo on piano with a little intro that feels like a ballad, but gets a skip into an up-tempo swing and is joined in tempo uh, by the bass and drums. The melody is uh, just a repeating 16-measure pattern, but it has such a great sense of completeness to it. And Pierre Nunzi goes around and around improvising on it. Great swing feel, melodic ideas, choppy chords. The trombones come in first with stabbing backing lines and then fluid saxes. Uh, the solo torch gets passed over to Joris, capturing a good lyrical quality in his flowing lines and some very Chet-like licks in there as well. Uh, there's a fun interval line that gets passed around the band section as it builds up to a climax with some soft and loud dynamic changes. The trumpets get up to full blast on a line before a little more melody from Joris with a short piano interlude. And the saxes shadow Joris's lines, and then the full band brings it to the end with some chimes from Pierre Nunzi, a very nice arrangement. Track three is just called Chet. And this is an airy but rhythmic tune and arrangement, a lush rubato piano opening from Pierre Nunzi with pretty little trickles of notes. He gets into tempo with some rhythmic figures, and then the bass and drums join in, giving it a straight, slow, four, but kind of subdivided beat in the cymbals. Soft and lush horn lines float in with muted brass and then fade out, and Joris enters with a solo over the rhythm section. He sounds soft and lyrical, but mixes in some speedy double-time licks. Hans Glashnik gets a ringing and punchy bass solo here. And Pierre Nunzi gets a rhythmic solo next with darting lines and an insistent left-hand push. Lush horn lines come in for backing, starting with saxes and flutes, then brass layers, a lot of nice weaving of horn lines in the arrangement. There's a nice fluttering interval figure that gets passed around the sections. Things quiet down for a return from Joris with the melody line. And Glashnig has cool, lightly throbbing bass lines underneath. Soft horn lines with more flutes and mutes add backing to Joris, and he takes it to the end with some final up-and-down piano figures from Pierre Nunzi. Track four is Soft Journey, a tune from that album I mentioned previously. Uh, it's a pretty waltzing tune. Soft rising and falling sax lines make an intro for Joris to come in on the melody. The horns back and follow his lines. It's lyrical, but has nice little pauses and skips in it to keep the rhythmic movement interesting. Pierre Nunzi has a fine snappy solo with some fun hesitation in his phrasing of lines. And next is a nice tribute idea to Chet. The harmonization and orchestration of Chet's improvised solo from the Soft Journey tune on the 79 recording of the same name. So uh, between 2 minutes and 3 seconds and 3 minutes and 43 seconds, Joris plays his actual solo, but they've made an arrangement around it. And, you know, that's how keen Chet Baker's melodic sense and phrasing was. A great jazz improviser, you know, like Coleman Hawkins... Uh, Chet Baker. When they play a solo, it gets a kind of inevitability and composed nature. You write it down, you wouldn't change anything just because it comes from someone with that kind of sense. So Joyce continues on after that with his own improvisations. Great tone here, subtle phrases. Uh, the full band gets some more arrangement, then ringing trumpets and then saxes with some interesting vibrato in their tone. Joris gets some more melody with chiming piano and fills underneath from Pierre Nunzi and a horn arrangement with some bouncing berry sax takes it to the end. 
Track five, also from Soft Journey, is a tune called Fairy Flowers. And this tune has a hypnotic beginning that works into becoming a pretty ballad. A slow descending four-note line of it sounds like trumpet and sax repeats over light drumming, and Pianunzi adds little figures underneath it. Ringing repeated bass notes bring in a short phrase from Joris and the horns in a thick cloud of mutes and bass trombone notes. Then some harmonic movement happens, and Pianunzi is left to play some chords and sparse melody over the rhythm section. Joris gets a very fluffy Chet-like tone for a solo line that gets swelling horn backing, and Joris gets into some fluttering improvisations, and then on to a more emphatic bluesy melody. Piernunzi has a tasty piano solo with great snappy bass from Glashenig below again, and the full horn arrangement swells in around him. It picks up speed and a bounce before settling back for more melody lines from Joris and a thick bed of horn lines. And it ends with the descending line idea and ringing bass from the beginning, so to an unexpected final chord with some rising piano notes. A very atmospheric tune. Track six, also from Soft Journey, is called Nightbird. Uh, this one's an intense syncopated swinging tune. Bass pickup notes into syncopated trombone and then trumpet and swirling saxes bring in the melody played in unison by Joris and Pierre Nunzi. The horn lines follow along too. Heinz Dieter Sauerborn gets a very tart-toned alto solo here with a lot of verve in his playing. Cool trombone backing lines come in and out. Uh, the band segues to a trombone solo from... Christian Josco, and then another short full band phrase with blaring trumpets brings Pierre Nunzi in on a solo, and he really hammers it out here with some cool triplet figures. The band screams in a gutsy tenor sax solo by uh, Stefan Weber, and the band builds up with bouncy interval lines into screams to bring Joris in for a solo. The full band gets swinging on an arrangement featuring some cool scooping sax lines to the end. Track 7's tune called Echoes. Uh, this tune has a kind of Latin 8-beat feel to it and interesting harmonies. Piernunzi starts it out with an intro of moving modal chords. Horn lines come in with rich lines. Sounds like bass clarinet in there too and a cool syncopated bass line. Joyce has a melody line shadowed by horns and flute too. And then uh, we get a really big-toned bass solo from Glauschnig again. Piernunzi follows that with a piano solo with some exciting rhythmic lines and punchy left-hand chords. Joris solos next with soft horn line backings, and then the rhythm section drops out, and there's a cool section of flute, clarinet, and bass clarinet lines that interact with a trombone, building into a full band swell. Joris gets melody lines uh, with horn backing into a sparser ending of the syncopated bass lines from the beginning with piano fills from Pierre Nunzi. Track 8, also from Soft Journey, is called Brown Cat Dance. It's an exciting and screaming swinging tune, and it starts with a rising scream from the trumpets right away. The brasswork figures over uh, drum fills, building up to the swinging melody from Joris and Pierre Nunzi. There are a lot of layers of sound and great backing line arrangements with synced up phrases. Things get off to uh, driving swing with walking bass for an exciting piano solo from Pierre Nunzi with bouncy bluesy ideas and clear high register lines. 
Felix Fromm gets a trombone solo, and the beat changes up to more of a New Orleans-style beat there. Uh, the backing lines and trumpet blasts are great, and Joris follows with a solo featuring some fast-fingered ideas and getting up into some high squeals on this one. A full band arrangement builds up with lots of trumpet screams that keep that New Orleans feel going. And then it jumps back into Joris's trumpet melody with a final exciting push to the end. Uh, great arrangement work here from Joris. We're going to wrap the recording up with The Real You. And we heard this tune in quite a different version on the album of the same name by Pierre Nunzi and Fonisbach. It's a pretty 3-4 ballad. Joris starts the melody over rich horn lines and piano chimes. His tone is lyrical and super fluffy here. Uh, the bass adds a pulse, but there are no drums. And then just piano and trumpet carry on with the cute halting phrases uh, before horns swelling around them. Finally, drums join in with a cymbal roll and a full band build up to get Joris soloing. And it really sounds like flugelhorn here, but the notes only say trumpet. Uh, it's a really good solo with lots of spaces and developing ideas. And Pierre Nunzi follows with an exciting solo that builds to a climax, swelling horn lines back into Joris's melody. And then just the two of them again for a section before a final rubato and rich ending of horn lines surrounding Joris. The final rising horn chords are thick and satisfying. And that's it. It's a great recording, a fine tribute to Chet Baker, wonderful compositions from Pierre Nunzi, and his always classy and impressive piano solos. Joris really evokes the spirit of Chet Baker while keeping his own personality in his solos, and he did a great job arranging these tunes. If you have time, please do compare them to the originals in the small group recordings to see how he transformed them into these bigger works. And the Frankfurt Radio Big Band impresses with lots of versatility, subtle shades of tone, and full throttle swinging and screaming. So if you like Chet Baker and uh, you like Big Band, yeah, I think you'll like this combination that they've put together. Yeah, there's a lot to listen to on this album. Um, one of the things I enjoyed most about it was the uh, quickly changing, you know, blink and you'll miss it quality of the arrangements. Mm. Just these certain textures appear and then they're just gone. Um, there's some ear catching moments you hear. And then they never come back, so you got to really enjoy them <laughs> while they're there. Uh, the band is beautifully captured on the recording in all its timbres and techniques. And Pierre Nuzzi's playing, of course, glitters with elegance as usual and smooth technique throughout. And uh, I kind of feel like yours is going for Chet Baker's tone in a lot of this album. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it doesn't uh, really sound like... touch, yeah. Yeah, okay. He reproduces it well enough. And, you know, I think that was good. He plays out quite a bit too as himself and i enjoyed him most when he was like you know playing out as opposed mm. to his like softer tone he's generally got a me mellow sustained note approach on this album it's appealing it's a beautiful album really and yeah. an excellent salute to check baker and the playing is just glowing uh, throughout the album yeah so there's another another cd i want <laughs> put it on my christmas list because i think that's the only time i could, <laughs> I could get him at this point right oh man all right we're gonna keep the uh Big band, large ensemble idea going uh, with this next recording, which will be released on June 23rd. It's on another label that we really like a lot, Cellar Live, uh, Corey Weeds' label. And this is the Daniel Herzog Jazz Orchestra, Open Spaces, Folk Songs Reimagined. So thanks to Ann Braithwaite of Braithwaite and Cats Communications for getting us uh, an early version of this to listen to. And uh, there's one or two tracks available on 
different streaming platforms. I think uh, Spotify has two tracks. Deezer has one. So if you want to check it out before then, I will add the links for it when it becomes available. So Daniel Herzog's born 1985. He's a Vancouver-based trumpeter and composer, a graduate of the New England Conservatory and winner of the Gunther Schuller Medal there. Uh, he teaches jazz trumpet at Capilano University, where he also writes for the school's big band and leads a trumpet ensemble. He's the winner of the 2020 Jazz Times Magazine poll for Best Composer, and he released his first album, Night Devoid of Stars, in 2020. And he says of this album, he was drawn to the folk material that it's sort of based on uh, for its sense of shared experience. Uh, he says, I loved these songs as a child, but it turned out that the other musicians in the band felt a real connection to this repertoire too. Uh, so it's kind of an uh, interesting basis to build a big band and some adventurous arranging around. And so Herzog is just the conductor on this recording. And um, you've got a full ensemble here. I'll run through them quickly. Ben Kono, oboe, soprano, sax, flute, and clarinet. Ben Henriquez, alto, sax, soprano, sax, clarinet. Noah Preminger, tenor sax. Tom Keenlyside, flute, alto, flute, piccolo, tenor sax. Scott Robinson, Barry Sachs, bass, clarinet, and flute. Michael Kim, trumpet and flugelhorn. Brad Turner, trumpet and flugelhorn. Barry Byrne, trumpet and flugelhorn. And Joycelyn Waugh, trumpet and flugelhorn. We got the trombone section. Jeremy Berkman, Jim Hopson, who also plays euphonium. Andrew Poirier, and bass trombone Charmin King. In the rhythm section, Kurt Rosenwinkel on guitar, Frank Kahlberg on piano, Kim Cass on bass, and Dan Weiss on drums. Well, there's a lot going on on this album. There certainly and, is. Um, yeah. It will take many listens to map out what the arrangements actually are. And I'd want to see the charts too while oh, wow. I was listening to this. So I'm not going to talk about the structure much like I usually do, but more like a play-by-play -play of the directions and vents that go on uh, through these tunes. And we're going to start out with a really neat idea, uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Boy, who would the, imagine this would be a jazz, jazz arrangement? Chart, right? you know? <laughs> uh, the Gordon Lightfoot tune. And we just... Uh, lost Gordon Lightfoot a few weeks back, we mentioned in the episode. And so for, you know, I think all American and Canadian uh, listeners would know uh, the story of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, but, you know, possibly listeners around the world may not know. Anyway, it was a um, American Great Lakes freighter that sank in Lake Superior during a storm in November 1975, and a crew of 29 men uh, were lost not at sea, but at lake mm. in, uh, event there. So uh, Herzog says that uh, this tune is, or the arrangement rather, is programmatic in nature. Uh, we begin with the sounds of confidence and hubris in Lightfoot's haunting familiar melody. And then the uh, tenor sax solo by Preminger signals the beginning of rough seas. And then um, Dan Weiss and Kurt Rosenwinkel add to the storm until finally the ship is damned. Uh, mm. So <laughs> you can kind of get the sense of disaster coming on. Uh, the arrangement's unique and interesting. Syncopated bass and piano hits and snare drum give it a kind of processional feeling at the beginning. There are swelling and repeated trombone notes that evoke foghorn-like uh, kind of tones. Uh, Lightfoot's famous melody line is handled by a unison sax and trumpet line, it sounds like. And it sounds like the bass figures get some berry and bass trombone, berry sax, that is, reinforcement as the arrangement swells up to a big trumpet scream. 
And then Preminger's angsty tenor sax brings that rough seas with some dangerous dissonance here. Uh, check out the rising and falling bass line, too, that gave me an impression of waves. Uh, Frank mm -hmm. Karlberg gets dangerous piano rumblings over drum mix-ups from Dan Weiss. And I can't make out what uh, Rosenwinkel is doing here, actually, myself. Uh, some new lines with bass clarinet, flute, and muted trumpets bring in kind of, I don't know, better weather after the storm into soaring open trumpets with the processional feel returning with more regal impression made. And some final rising swirling woodwind lines where the flute tone really stands out. Now, track two is called uh, How Many Roads, and this is supposed to be a recomposed uh, version of Blowing in the Wind, Bob mm. Dylan's tone. Oh, I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't told <laughs> well, me. <laughs> yeah. A really nice woodwind arranging on this tune, and Rosenwinkel starts uh, with a soft interval line over rhythmic piano and swelling woodwinds, uh, added brass too. Things pause for some ringing piano. A new rhythmic push develops with drums for a new guitar figure. There's another pause and little trills. It sounds like oboe here as the bass drum beat kicks up more. The brass have a flowing transition to Rosenwinkel's solo, and his tone is like a, a synth lead here, uh, but it has no attack on it, so it's almost could be like a keyboard or almost like a wind instrument. You know, if you just heard the sound, you know, you, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a guitar. Uh, the reverby tone dominates the landscape with really reaching melodic ideas and crying phrases. Some rhythmic piano figures alternate with woodwind solely lines and the brass sneak in before coming in for a full on screaming line. Then things get a funky drum beat and bass groove for a piano solo from Karlberg. There's some cool drum beat hesitations, and you can hear some vocalizations along with the piano solo. Uh, the horn sections have interjecting backing lines to a final unified climactic rising line, and a little pause resets things into a more flowing groove with a cool horn arrangement of weaving lines. There's a final section with dreamy woodwind and trills uh, over rhythmic piano. It stops and starts without the rhythm for a short section as well. And then Karlberg finishes it out with ringing piano. It's very interesting. But like Mike said, mm. I confess, I completely forgot about Bob Dylan when I was listening <laughs> to this. So. Track three is called Ahead by a Century. And I guess this was a uh, 1996 uh, rock song hit by uh, the group Tragically Hip. Uh. So it's a uh, up-tempo and swinging treatment of this classic Canadian rock song. These are from the notes. The original motifs are reworked and reimagined with exciting solos uh, from Ben Cunnell on soprano sax and Brad Turner on the trumpet. Uh, so after an opening horn line, things get swinging and bouncy with a repeated note bass line. The horn lines swell in and out with some interaction from Rosenwinkel's guitar. Ben Cano has a soprano sax solo with deliriously adventurous harmonic ideas. The horns swell around him. Low brass alternates phrases with higher lines and then an interesting combination of flute with Rosenwinkel's tone uh, and undulating lines. Brad Turner bursts out of that with an energized trumpet solo. The horns build up around him and then continue to build into a full band section. And there's a cool low sax and trombone rhythmic figure line uh, contrasting with the screaming trumpets. Karlberg take things in a different direction with a trilling and interval piano idea over bubbling bass into more chaotic lines joined by Rosenwinkel. But suddenly, a slow, warm, and major final cadence ends it, and I didn't see that coming at mm -hmm. all. 
Get ready for things to turn on a dime on this recording. Track four, the traditional Shenandoah. Oboe starts it out, joined by flute and clarinets, and then warm brass lines layer into it. Piano chimes add some harmonic tension, and then the huge bear-like tone of Scott Robinson's Barry sax enters uh, with the melody exchanging phrases with uh, horn lines. Really fine and subtle phrasing, passionate exclamations. Uh, he gets into all registers of the instrument, way up high. We talk about Altissimo register. Uh, he certainly has it. Chiming piano from Carlberg underneath with tasty runs. And Robinson takes the berry way up high again. A really amazing solo. It, it recedes to just berry sax over piano trickles, uh, coming to a pause way down in the lower of the lowest registers of that big horn. It'll really vibrate your room. Hmm. Uh, flowing horn lines flow through bringing the berry back, working into higher lines, and Rosenwinkel adds some dreamy lines into the mix too. It ends up with some final synced warm horn lines. Track five, I Hear, and this is Herzog's original. It's based on the French-Canadian folk to Jean-Tan Le Moulin. And this one starts with bass, berry, and drum hits that come along in this kind of interesting pattern of one, two hits, three hits, and then one more hit. It's kind of syncopated. And then that makes a basis for this kind of either intergalactic space noise or dolphin communication, <laughs> whatever <laughs> you want to call it, of sounds from various uh, horns and guitars uh, freely improvising. A little descending horn line enters into that mix to break it up. And then it comes back again. And the second time it brings it into Noah. Preminger on some free tenor soloing with some angsty edges over a steady beat. Uh, things start to gel a bit more harmonically with repeated horn phrases, and then things get undulating and folky with minor melody lines bounced around through the horn sections. The undulating bass and piano line alternates humorously with some minor swing and huge horn glisses and, <laughs> and nice rhythm guitar for a soprano sax solo from Ben Kono. It settles into that swing groove and gets a bluesy character as Kono flies through lines with really fast finger work. Right before five and a half minutes, the beat changes up a bit to a more Latin feel. Uh, back to the swing and undulating line alternations for Brad Turner to get a trumpet solo through those same patterns of different sections. He starts with sassy and puckish phrases into more reaching and ripping lines. And Weiss is really kicking in things on the drums here. Uh, the undulating bass line comes back and now it, it gets swooping trombone lines, growls and trumpet screams that are built up. Uh, sounds like a spy theme for a bit there when it gets going, but then it plummets off into dangerous dissonances again with crashing piano and sax squiggles. Weiss gets some tight snare work and hits going into a drum solo that keeps changing up uh, until it works into a little Latin groove and a roll to bring the band back in with lines we heard before, plus rising trumpet lines to a final scream after one more undulating bass line section. Track six, Herzog's original jib set. It's a tune he wrote for his parents uh, about the yacht club where his parents met at. Uh, flowing horn lines, contrasting flutes with warm low brass over repeated piano chords lead to a steady rhythm over a rising and falling bass line idea. Rising horn figures build up tension into soaring solo from Rosenwinkel with a light clicky groove and sunny harmonies in this tune. Nice rhythmic piano work from Carlberg. 
another section of horn arrangement with muted trumpet lines, flutes, making a rich mixed transition to a tenor solo from Preminger. His really relaxed phrasing and lots of space between ideas, as he gathers momentum, he gets harmonically adventurous. Things reset and build up from a bass and piano line that horn lines sync up to and then spread out in harmonized directions from. Brass blasts alternate with guitar and drums into rising guitar lines and soaring brass lines. A new groove forms for Preminger and Rosenwinkel to exchange improvised ideas over for an ending segment. Track 7 is called Canadian Folk Song. Uh, it's not a traditional one. It's uh, Herzog's original. He says, I was trying to come up with my own tune worthy of singing around a campfire. Uh, so Rosenwinkel starts it out with a reverby and thick-toned intro of chords and flowing lines. Drums, piano, and bass come in with a medium-slow tempo that horn lines build over for a section. Then Rosenwinkel's back with the main folky melody. Uh, it moves freely through some horn lines and cymbal decorations while Rosenwinkel launches into dreamy improvisations and the steady beat returns. It's a very pretty horn arrangement. Goes through another floating section of horn ideas as a transition to a solo from Preminger who brings a bit of uh, R&B sentiment along with Karlberg's gospely piano chords. Another floating horn line section transition leads to a solo from Karlberg, sounding relaxed and ringing. A big horn arrangement build up with soaring flutes and trumpets finishes it out as it comes down in volume and bass clarinet gets the last phrase of the tune. Hmm. Track 8, Rontrer. French word to uh, return. To return, yeah. And uh, I guess it's returning to um, normal life after the uh, pandemic, returning home, returning oh, to simpler is. days okay. and like that. Yeah. Uh, this starts out with a solo acoustic bass from Kim Cass. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> Listen to these ringing notes, running lines, harmonics, and some power chords uh, thrown in there too. <laughs> uh, piano mm -hmm. figures uh, get it going from there. Swelling uh, horn lines and a ringing ostinato bass lines established. Kohlberg has some darting piano improvisations and percussive chords under the sustained horn lines that Rosenwinkel floats out of with his own line. Guitar and horn lines then lace together while the tempo drops away and then returns again. As Scott Robinson works his way in from unknown harmonic territory high up on the Barry Sachs range. Uh, it's like he's coming from another planet here uh, to get a solo started. And he gets down low, too, with an adventurous solo of variety. Uh, there's a flowing horn line arrangement section that works up to and continues over new perpetual lower piano, bass, and Barry sax line. Uh, that busy line simplifies into the bass ostinato from earlier, and the saxes work it uh, with other horn lines weaving and tumbling above. It gets quiet with just the bass line below, and then gets strange with piano dissonance, guitar and sax, atonal musings on top of it to the end. Track 9 is a tune named for a flower native to Newfoundland, Saracenia purpurea. Yep, close enough, I guess. I guess. Uh, it's written for his wife, who spent five years of residency in Newfoundland. It supposedly captures the bouncing melodies of the Canadian East Coast. Well, a fast six-note piano figure gets joined by Rosenwinkel and passed around the horns as other rising lines get stacked on top. And the piccolo really cuts through on this one. Mm -hmm. A three-beat triplet dancey feel with syncopation forms through the lines into a bright-toned entrance for a trumpet solo from Brad Turner. The six-note pattern returns in a horn section buildup with some cacophony transitions to another solo from Scott Robinson. Starting in the Barry Sachs Altissimo range, uh, the bass gets uh, really busy and Robinson takes off in all directions. 
horn lines come back in with some speedy runs and all kinds of tones uh, as a clappy beat is formed, and the dancey rhythm returns for a final happy ending with the horns. And we're going to wrap the recording up with Red River Valley. Warm low brass tones exchange with another line topped by flute to get things going. Rosenwinkel interrupts with some chords. They get a processional going for the horns to deliver the melody and pass sections back and forth with Rosenwinkel. More horn arrangement is developed with woodwinds and trumpets floating on their own before a steady light groove comes back for Rosenwinkel to play out a really country-laced melody uh, line of the tune uh, before things transform with great horn swells into bluesy improvised lines. I really liked uh, that transformation that happens from his solo there. It's a real kind of lifting point uh, for me. Then things get unexpectedly simple with a band vocal singing the song over simple piano and guitar accompaniment. Uh, Horn lines add in with the vocals and then float on to a new heavier drum groove with another start of a melody section that gets passed off to Rosenwinkel again. And a final rising horn line builds up tension and just a final guitar chord to end it. So, adventurous arrangements, unexpected directions, and changes abound. Uh, There's a lot going on here in Herzog's musical vision. One thing you can easily enjoy, regardless of if you can follow all the things happening, are his use of timbres and blends of sounds. He makes full use of the woodwind versatility of these musicians and the brass Uh, both open and muted instruments. The blends of Gil Evans come to mind, but with a lot more modern composition ideas and uh, harmonic sort of uh, devices. Uh, The folk themes make interesting material to work out these ideas on. Interesting and unique solos from Robinson, Turner, and Preminger, and Rosenwinkel's guitar tone and ideas add a unique element and blend to the songs and create these uh, kind of interesting tonal mixes. At an hour and 15 minutes, it's a long recording, but uh, yeah, I don't think you're going to find anyone arranging quite with the uniqueness and uh, bursting with ideas at every turn uh, like this. So it was certainly an interesting listen. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of ideas in it. You keep using the word adventurous. Uh, the word I used was arty. It's kind of, oh, a, okay. it's, I thought it was kind of an arty Arty record. And, you know, like I, I even used this word for the baritone sax um, album that we heard earlier, but right. they're very different, obviously. Yeah, very much. Okay, the arrangements do have a lot of ideas, and we get a lot of change of rhythm and harmonic coloring on each track, and uh, the ear is really doesn't really know where to go unless yeah. this is so much happening. The ensemble and playing are all first rate, okay, and the band blends together when playing harmony exceptionally well, and there's a lot of uh, controlled chaos on the album as yes. well. And uh, I like the way that the band is able to, like on the, on, you know, at the drop of a dime, like just snap back into focus when they have to. It's yeah. always a cool effect. The band uh, put across an extraordinary number of styles on this album. Uh, some of them are rooted in jazz and some aren't. Uh, you know, some of them are folk-like mm. and things like that. They're, they're always impressive. It's a fairly intellectual recording, though. It's something mm. you don't really hear too much of in jazz. Uh, so I say this is a good album for those ready to stretch their ideas of what a folk song and what a jazz arrangement can be. Yeah. Yeah. And check it out. It'll be out on uh, June 23rd. And I think he'll get some attention for this because, uh, yeah, it's arty, unique, and uh, the tone blends are really interesting. So I'll be interested to see uh, what he comes up with. Also, there's uh, already there's two videos of the studio recording of this. Oh, really? Uh, from those tunes on YouTube, if you want to check that out. It's kind that of might interesting. be worth seeing just to see how you know, all of this is uh, yeah. 
plays out it's like when you're watching it. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to see if the other ones turn up once the album's released. So mm. anyway, thanks again, uh, Anne Braithwaite, for that. And uh, good luck to Mr. Herzog. I hope you get a good audience uh, for this. Looking forward to seeing this album come out and be released. Well, that's it. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for mm. our glowing neon logo. Remember to check out the Same Difference podcast. Check up on your jazz standards. We'll be have a little audio promo at the end of this, as well as a link in the description. And as we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to take a week off after 94 straight weeks, episodes, and three interviews. So if you miss us, th- we'll I be think back. We earned it. Yeah, we have I think it. we earned it. Yeah. We'll be back in two weeks on July 3rd. Yeah. And if you, uh, you know, you miss us, go back and check out some old episodes. I know you haven't listened to all of them, especially our interviews. Nicholas Sivalov, up-and-coming composer, great pianist. Uh, that's yeah. interview six. We've got uh, Rudresh Mahantapa, one of the giants of uh, jazz saxophone as well. You can go back and catch our Ranitsky interview um, with Daniel Bernardson and Merrick Stilitz. Yeah, there's another uh, Ranitsky album coming out, in that's fact. That's right. It's uh, coming pretty up Pretty soon. soon. Yeah. yeah. As well as um, Yakovos Semonidis, uh, Yakov Organ Trio. Uh, I want to find out about Greek jazz and the great right. Mike Ladon. All those interviews are just there. If you haven't heard them, go back and check them out. Indeed. Anyway, um, yeah, before that next episode, uh, we'll figure out uh, what exactly we're going to do and get a playlist up a little bit early. So if you okay. come and check out uh, the Deezer playlist listings and as well as it'll be posted on our Facebook site. So if you haven't followed us over there yet, do come along and follow. Keep listening. Check out those uh, new recordings when we post them and we'll see you again in two weeks. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.